The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Extra big parental warning on today's episode. Almost every episode of Time Suck is wildly inappropriate, but this one a little extra disturbing. This one's up there with the Toy Box Killer, Albert Fish, Joseph Duncan, Bob Berdella, Chikatilo, and a few others as far as being one of the most upsetting topics we've ever covered. Uh, fascinating as hell, but extremely graphic content lies ahead. Between the years of 1955 and 1976, Joachim Kroll raped, murdered, and also ate many of his victims. All but one of his victims were women, most of them young girls living around uh, Diesberg, Germany, relatively unknown outside of Germany. The Diesberg Maneater, a.k.a. the Roar Hunter, a.k.a. the Roar Cannibal, was an intensely disturbing and deranged serial killer who terrorized his victims by committing some of the most heinous crimes known to man. Kroll killed at least 14 people and potentially killed, raped, and ate more than twice that amount during his two-decade-long spree. He also destroyed additional lives in other ways by having a string of unfortunate men take the fall for his crimes. Did he pull all this off because he was some kind of criminal mastermind? Uh, no, not even close. He's the most intellectually challenged killer we've ever covered, but don't let that make you feel sorry for this monster. His crimes don't leave any room for sympathy. After we learn about Kroll and his demented tale, stick around for a deeper look into cannibalism around the world. Turns out there are more than a few other examples of meat sacks as disturbing as Kroll. So buckle up and get ready for a dark as fuck true crime. Did you really just say that edition of Time Suck? This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the dark web diver, minstrel of mayhem, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, watch over us, Lucifina, protect us, Bojangles, and soothe us, Triple M. A recording in the Suck Dungeon, again in CDA. It's actually a beautiful 
summer day out now, finally, uh, with the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Logan Keith, all in the building. Got to get Logan a nickname. Already used Micropene a while back, so uh, I have to find something new. Thanks for uh, continuing to rate and review Time Suck online. Uh, noted and appreciated, Meets X. Thanks for continuing to return to the cult of the curious. A reminder that we donated $5,800 to ALZ.org this month to help end Alzheimer's and dementia. Link in the episode description. Thank you for that, all of you uh, Patreon-supporting space lizards. Uh, got some seriously weird COVID-19 face masks up at badmagicmerch.com for those of you who either have to wear them or just, you know, want to. If you're going to, you might as well have fun with it. Also, two new variations of a, a new tee with more of a classic Time Suck look. Nice subdued addition to the catalog for those of you hesitant to wear some of our more, uh, you know, over-the-top designs out there in public or at work. And while they look very tame, they are made out of 204% albino liger taint. So very rare, extremely exotic, super durable, uh, guaranteed to put a little extra pep in your step. And now, God help us all. Let's get to know Joachim Kroll. Kroll would kill in Germany for a long, long time. I, I actually can't think of anyone who killed and ate as many people and got away with it for as long as he did anywhere. Kroll would later try and claim that his murders had to do with a simple inability to buy food. He's just trying to save money on his groceries. Uh, that's bullshit. He did it because he loved it. He did it because it turned him on. He loved gore, sexually attracted to gore. Uh, unlike most serial killers we covered, Kroll never had an actual consensual sexual relationship with uh, anyone in his life. He almost had uh, one one-night stand, almost, never learned how to talk to women, never learned how to talk to anyone, really, never really had any friends, very, very much a loner, and being a loner, often not a good thing. Many of us, if not almost all of us or all of us, need someone to help reel us back in from the darkness from time to time. Kroll had no such person, not after his mother died. He was untethered free to explore his sadistic urges. No one was watching him. No one was checking in. And that's a damn shame because he really, really could have used someone to guide him towards a much better life than the one he chose. Let's dig into that life now in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. On April 17th, 1933, Joachim Georg Kroll, born in a town that no longer exists under the name or country it did when Joachim was born, Hindenburg, province of Upper Silesia. Streaming to a wormhole, I spent way too much time researching. Bear with me for a moment. Wanting to get a feel for the town of his birth, I had trouble getting details about Hindenburg because there is no Hindenburg, Germany. Not anymore. A few decades prior to Joachim's birth, his town was known by its Polish name of Zabrze, Poor Poland. Uh, I've joked around a lot about Poland on Time Suck because my wife is mostly Polish. Uh, it really has truly been invaded so, so many times. It's been fucked over a bunch of times. Uh, it's long history, pretty damn complicated, being sandwiched between various Russian and German states. Turned into a real punching bag. It's dealt with the foreign pressers for most of the last two and a half centuries. Russia, Austria, and Prussia, essentially Germany under a different name, uh, carved Poland up in 1795. And the historically Polish city of Zabrze, uh, Zabrze, uh, now under Prussian rule, was renamed Hindenburg in honor of the German general and later president of Germany in 1915. After World War I, Poland regained its independence, but a lot of Germans had settled in Hindenburg during its Prussian occupation, and it ended up right on the border of, uh, you know, the new Poland and Germany. 
And a vote was held for its residents to decide if it wanted to remain German or go back to being Polish. And the majority of its residents were like, fuck Poland. So most of the city remained a part of Germany. The city ended up becoming divided uh, as a border town. Joachim ended up being born on the German side. Then World War II happened and Germany took Poland back over. And all of Zabzia uh, fell back under German control. Then World War II ended and Poland became its own nation again. And it was given a brand new, more expanded border. And Hindenburg was no longer a border town. It fell well within Poland. And then in 1945, its residents were like, fuck Germany. And they renamed it Zabzia. And that is why when you find Joachim's bio on some place like Wikipedia, Murderpedia, whatever, and it says he was born in Hindenburg, Germany, and then you click the link or you, you know, look into it, uh, Zabzia Poland pops up instead of Hindenburg. So boom, uh, mystery solved. Hail Nimrod. And I do realize most people probably don't give a shit about that detail, but it confused me and it bothered me. And once I figured it out, I felt like I had to share it with you. Uh, so <laughs> what did Joachim do growing up in this German Polish town? Well, not a lot is written about Joachim's early life and sources are often contradictory. He was either the sixth or the eighth of a total of eight or nine children born to the Kroll family. I'm going to go with eight. It's the number that comes up the most often. Six sisters, one brother. The names of his siblings or his parents, curiously not given in any of the sources we can find online. Those details may exist in sources written in German. I would be surprised if they didn't actually, but none of that info seems to have made the jump into English. Seems that Joachim was born into a coal mining family. Uh, the area of Zabzia had become a huge coal mining region by the end of the 18th century. Joachim was a small, feeble, and intellectually slow child, estimated, estimated to have an IQ of around 76, putting him in the middle of the category of borderline impaired or delayed on the most recent fifth edition of the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scale. Below 69 is mildly impaired or delayed. Other scales list a score of 76 as low intelligence or as well below average. According to those who study intelligence, a mind in this IQ range will have a limited trainability, will have difficulty with everyday demands. These include problems using a phone book, reading bus or train schedules, uh, banking, filling out forms, using appliances like uh, microwaves or computers. Um, I find Joachim's level of intelligence pretty uh, interesting. Very different than most of the killers we've covered here on Time Suck. He was for sure smart enough to know what he was doing was very wrong. He always took steps to hide his crimes, always took steps to get away with what he was doing. So in that sense, I do not give him a pass. Uh, I don't feel sorry for him. It doesn't seem that his limited intellectual ability led him to murder, not at all. His compulsion for sadistic killing doesn't seem to have been connected in any way to, say, his uh, inability to perform well in school academically. I find his low intelligence interesting because of how long he got away with his horrific crimes. Two decades. Usually someone who gets away with brutal serial killing for that long is more likely to be some type of criminal mastermind than someone with the intelligence of a, a mentally impaired child. Due to Joachim's limited intellectual abilities, he was labeled as being stupid by his classmates, physically small and weak as well, uh, with gigantic ears that stuck uh, almost straight out. Young Kroll was a bully magnet. Obviously, this took a hard emotional toll on him as it would anyone being bullied, being socially ostracized. That may have for sure helped lead him to becoming a serial killer. So I guess in that sense, his low IQ and murders could be seen as being somewhat connected. Uh, seems Joachim was also ridiculed at home by his older sisters and brother. According to Kroll, all of his family members took part in teasing him except his mother. Sweet, sweet mommy. Kroll became quite the mama's boy and her later death would devastate him. Mother, you are the only one I can trust. Uh, Kemper reference there for any new listeners thinking, uh, where the hell did that voice just come from? 
Kroll's father allegedly instigated much of the abuse, both mentally and physically, against his slow, feeble son. Kroll claimed that his father thought he was a loser, made a point to tell him that on a regular basis. So now, while we uh, still don't know uh, his dad's name, we do know uh, that his home was not filled with awesome father trophies. And again here, his numerous siblings, according to Kroll, weren't much better than their dad, using Kroll as a family scapegoat, blaming him for things that would have gotten them in trouble. He'd end up supposedly taking their beatings. He quickly became the outsider of the family, the black sheep, the outcast. Uh, he would develop into a loner. As we just learned in the killer kids suck, becoming a, a picked on loner is a great way to grow up and become a killer. And needless to say, his self-esteem was not off the charts high. He didn't wear a lot of t-shirts that unironically said stuff like stud muffin. Uh, no one ever seriously referred to this guy as uh, being the German equivalent of a pussy magnet, not in some unironic way. Kroll also uh, had a serious bedwitting issue. Uh, that would plague him for much of his life, uh, making things even better. His family was super poor, as was much of Germany between the end of World War I and during World War II. Krolls often waited in long bread lines just to get barely enough shitty food to stop their stomachs from growling. Oh my, my God, it's like just a, a pit of sadness here. His childhood was, was uh, like fodder for one of Steph Coxgurvy's routines, you know, the dark comic of the Suckverse. If you grew up a big-eared, no-friend-having bedwetter standing in a bread line with your daddy and sisters and brother who mock you relentlessly for being slow and the only friend you have in the world is your mama, you might be a killer. Uh, 1940 or 1941, after Joachim finished up uh, the third grade, he was placed into a special needs school where he continued to struggle when it came to learning to rewrite and work with numbers. Even at this school, he was the target of bullies. Poor kid. Uh, now at a school full of kids, likely bullied in their previous schools, he's still bullied. Uh, he was he was not the, uh, king shit of fuck mountain. He stood at the very bottom of that hill. At the age of around 10 in 1943, like most German boys of the time, Joachim was drafted into the Hitler Youth Party. Once again, his low intelligence, his quote-unquote mousy features, and big ears made him an instant target for ridicule. Small for his age, slow to respond to instructions. Nazi group leaders called him stupid, gutless, and a wimp. Uh, which isn't really surprising. I mean, it's not like the Nazis were known for being kind and nurturing. I mean, how weird would it be if the story took that particular turn? You know, for all of a sudden it's like, and when uh, Joachim joined the Hitler Youth, everything turned around. His fellow young Nazis helped him with his reading, his writing, his arithmetic. They taught him how to fight, how to take care of himself. He learned how to talk to girls. His self-esteem skyrocketed thanks to all those super supportive, emotionally sensitive young Nazis. Uh, Kroll didn't last long, was basically kicked out of the Hitler Youth for not being up to Nazi standards. It's got to be a tough self-esteem day, right? Especially when your dad is now fighting in the war for Germany. You know, this young Kroll just, yes, Hitler, I want to be part of the master race. Nine, nine. The master race is not about the large bat ears. The master race is not about the tiny muscles and the tiny brain. You must be more than just hating the Jews. You must be strong. You must not be a little girly bat boy. Uh, at some point during the war, Kroll's father dies fighting for Germany against the Russians. His already poor family is even worse off than before, so super fun times. Uh, and, and actually, we think Kroll's dad died in the war. Some sources say he was taken as a prisoner of war by Russia towards the end of the war and just never returned home. Other sources say he did return home and either died later in Kroll's childhood or abandoned his family. And no matter which version is true, by the time Kroll would be arrested for multiple murders, uh, both his parents would be long, long dead. Uh, during the war, Kroll's family moves around looking for any work they can find to stay alive in war-devastated Germany. Times are tough, real tough for almost everyone in the area. 1945, when Kroll is 12, his hometown now suddenly belongs to Poland. 
anti-German sentiment rises in the area, which I, I guess is to be expected. I don't think anyone uh, after the war gave the Nazis a real pass of just like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> Shit happens. We, we get it. Uh, so Kroll's shitty life gets even shittier. Now kids can make fun of him for being a former Nazi in addition to being slow, weak, physically unattractive. Uh, he's killing the game. He's killing it. He's jumping out of bed every morning, just fucking pumping his fist. Fuck yeah. Woo. Loving my life. Uh, no. Between 1947 and 1949, when Kroll is between the ages of 14 and 16, the Kroll family flees Poland, moves back to Germany, to a little village in the area, uh, in the what now makes up the state of North Rhine-Westphalia. And uh, they get work as farm laborers. They move into a tiny two-room house. Mm-hmm. His mom, six sisters, brother, him, all living in a two-room home. Oh, everything's aces. Everything's going really, really well for the Krolls. Uh, to help the family, young Yachim and his, uh, or Yahim, excuse me, and his siblings now all work as farmers. And according to the records we could find, uh, Yahim enjoyed working on the farm. Uh, like really enjoyed it too much, actually. Uh, it was good for his self-esteem to do something productive, but um, he got a little carried away with farm life. He sexually discovered himself. On the farm. Uh-huh. Things are about to get real explicit and insane. Insane, excuse me. Uh, Kroll especially enjoyed working in the slaughterhouses. Uh, yikes. Maybe a little bit of a red flag there. Uh, was that a slaughterhouse where uh, Yahim first felt uh, strong sexual arousal? Uh, oof. Uh, he later admitted to authorities that while he was watching someone butcher a pig, when he first saw the pig's blood and heard its screams, his stomach tingled and he felt sexually aroused in a way he had never experienced before. He got so turned on, so taken by the surging of chemicals and his suddenly racing heartbeat that he actually had to go outside to catch his breath, calm back down. He had to, he had to go walk off a murder boner that he now was sporting. My God. If the first time you remember damn near poking a hole in your overalls with your meat sword was the first time you saw a hog get killed, you might be a killer. Lord have mercy, you might be a killer. Uh, Yahim would later refer to this sense of extreme arousal as his funny feelings. It's a little quote from him. His funny feelings. So fucking creepy. Can you imagine going hunting with this guy or something? Uh, where are you heading off to, Yahim? Uh, gutting this deer making you sick? Nine. I, I like it. I like it too much. Needing to find a private place to beat away my funny feelings. Uh, later on in his young adult life, Yahim would have uh, much more direct sexual experiences with farm animals. Yahim never assigned an exact age to these relations when he talked about it, so I might as well just uh, relay this information now. At a later point in his youth, Kroll watched a farmer inseminate a cow by shoving his hand into the cow's vagina, and surprise, surprise, he had some more funny feelings. <laughs> Nasty-ass light bulb went off in his demented head. He thought something along the lines of, hmm, if that guy can put his arm inside the cow, I can for sure get my vena in there. Apparently, that's exactly what he started doing. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And often, we don't know how often. Unfortunately, he didn't He didn't keep some kind of deranged uh, cow fucking journal. The dearest diary. Today is August 16th, 1951. It was a warm summer's day today in Heidersmeigel. I fucked in the morning, stockings of hay bales in the main barn. I fucked up quite an appetite. Then when I went to get some warm, fresh milk, that is when I first saw her. Betsy was beautiful. Long eyelashes, dark, seductive eyes, wonderful coloring. Beautiful brown fists with sexy little hooves and a little skinny little tail that really got my juices flowing. We made love in stall number four. Me thrusting away as a powerful lover that I am. 
and her eating some hay and swatting some flies from her sexy hide. It was a perfect day. I think I will see her again. Dare I say I might have found a new girlfriend. <laughs> Father was wrong. Oh, Yahim is not a loser. It's quite a latest man. This is the fourth lady car I conquered this month. I, might, I think I might even be a slut even. I just... <sighs> so clearly Yahim not developing a healthy sexual identity. Uh, so far, <laughs> this story... I'm just going to stop and laugh a bunch. I've, uh, I was doing this the entire week. Researching so far, pig slaughter, cow fucking, are his primary sources of sexual satisfaction. Jesus. Also, sometime in his early farming youth, uh, he does make at least one attempt at trying to seduce a human woman. Doesn't go well. Uh, he has no idea how to talk to women. He later would talk with psychiatrists after his capture about making some impulsive advances towards a milkmaid he was working with. And she rejected his advances, uh, which sound like they were super clumsy. Basically, it sounds like he just walked up to a milkmaid he was working with and just out of nowhere started trying to make out with her. And she was like, what the fuck are you doing? Get away from me, you creep. Like, it sounded like he approached this woman like he would approach one of the cows he was fucking. Like, no conversation, no foreplay, like, just like, get into it. Death, death diary, it's nice, it's nice, seven, nineteen fifty two. It's an up and down day here in Strusel sauerkraut. This morning, I tried to make Greta's milkmaid my girlfriend. I approached her with the same hot moves. I've been using on the cow ladies for so much success. And I for certain thought she would have been so wet, so horny, but my moves. She shouted nine. She buffed me in the face and she ran away. Luckily, in the afternoon during the break for lunch, I ran into a beautiful German Holstein in store number nine, Clarabel. Such good coloring, such a busty little udder. What a hot little udder. She liked my thrusting so much, even stopped eating the hay to turn her head and moot me enticingly. Uh, after several years of farm work and cow fucking, on January 21st, 1955, uh, when Yahim is 21, his mom dies, and this seemed to break something inside of him. His mom was the most important person in the world to Yahim, the one woman who didn't seem to openly despise him or at least be annoyed or creeped out by him. Uh, he was crushed when she passed. Only a few weeks later, he began his two-decade-long murder spree. Did he take the anger he felt out? About his mom's passing on future victims? Did he suddenly just feel comfortable succumbing to dark urges? He may have had for years. Now that he no longer had, uh, you know, to worry about mommy finding out, we don't know. Yahim didn't appear to be capable, really, of verbally expressing that type of introspection. In most accounts, his family drifts apart after his mom's passing now that uh, both parents are dead. It doesn't appear that he really kept in touch with any family after this, at least according to uh, any of the sources, what was, uh, you know, revealed in any of the articles. Immediately after his mom's passing, Yahim moves to Diesburg in uh, northwest Germany, part of, again, the Ruhr region where he would spend the rest of his life. Diesburg, a uh, city of around half a million uh, in a metro area of several million. The Ruhr region Ruhr, or Ruhr district, known primarily for its mining and steel production, encompasses 50 industrial cities, often referred to as the Iron Triangle. Sounds lovely. Uh, back in the 50s, it was uh, both a heavily populated and also incredibly polluted area. More people live there than they do now due to a decline in mining and, and a decline in steel production uh, beginning in the mid-60s. In the 50s, it was inundated with factories, unhindered by modern environmental laws. It was a nightmare. Soot, sulfuric acid regularly fell from the sky, coloring the waterways, bright shades of yellow and green, rendering local streams devoid of life. The few species of wildlife able to exist in this toxic environment, reportedly poisonous and considered inedible, as were most forms of plant life. Also, uh, making it even better, 80% of all residential buildings in the city had been destroyed or, or partly damaged, at least, in World War II bombing raids. Uh, pictures of the area make it seem like it's quite nice now, but the Diesburg Yahim moved into in 1955 was 
Some type of low-rent Gotham City, straight out of a particularly dark run of Batman comics. A fitting, uh, desolate backdrop for his depraved crimes. Yahim found work as a janitor and as a, quote, toilet attendant. And with the help of governmental social services, moved into his own apartment. He also made at least one attempt at having a sexual relationship with a human woman quickly after arriving in Duisburg. Met a waitress from a nearby bar, took her out for a movie. It seems to be his one and only date. Apparently, she was the one who asked him out. He got nervous around her, unable to communicate much with her. Uh, they made it to the movie. Then afterwards, she told him to take her uh, back to his flat. When he made it back to his place, she began to touch him sexually. His total lack of experience with women revealing itself in an embarrassing way. He got excited, got nervous, and he prematurely ejaculated. And then apparently this woman got upset with him, made fun of him, and then left. So great. First mom dies, and now this. Uh, premature ejaculation will be a recurring problem for Yahim, according to what he told police years later. And I guess this lady told other, you know, uh, people. Must have been a bar close by, and uh, other women supposedly made fun of him. Who knows how much that was in his mind, how much of it was real. Uh, he was certain now that he wouldn't ever be able to have uh, real sex with a woman despite his heightened desire to do so. He was too intimidated now. So he just uh, uh, went back to having sex with farm animals. Not sure how he did that when he was working as a janitor. I imagine he just snuck out to some open fields outside of town at night. Did some more deeds that he would not write about in the imaginary journal. I'm still pretending that he kept. Yes, that's Irish. That is February 1st, 1955. Not the greatest of days. I had a date with Marta. That began terrific, but ended in tragedy. So I sat quietly through a movie, then she took me back to my place, put her hand under my penis. It gave me the funniest of funny feelings. I liked it so very much. And little Yahim, he liked it too much. He liked it way too much. And he saw to speak, he spit up his food before the meal was finished. And Marta, she grew angry. And she left after... After washing the little Yakum spit out of the sink, and thanks to heavens, there's always for the cowfields. I think, I think there's always cowfields, always so many sexy for naked field ladies. Uh, February 8th, 1955, just over two weeks after his mom's death, Yahim kills for the first time. The cruel murder spree officially has begun. Yahim's feeling lonely, desperate for human interaction on the afternoon of February 8th. And uh, he goes on some kind of journey, takes a short train ride before, uh, according to him, exiting at a random stop. Some later investigators would think that his stop was not so random. They would think that maybe he had been stalking this victim uh, for a while before her murder. Either way, whether it was random or not, he got off the train, walked along a road on the edge of a forest, and ended up encountering 19-year-old Ermgard Strail. She was a beautiful young blonde, dressed in all green, walking to the nearby village of Herrenstein, less than a mile away, to have lunch with her parents. Girl found her to be extremely attractive, asked if she would like to take a walk in the woods with him. At least that's what he, what he said. He said he asked her that. Maybe. I, I have some doubts. I just can't see this girl agreeing to uh, go walking out into the woods with some dude she just met. Especially when this dude is creepy-ass uh, Yahim Kroll, a dude who looked like a serial killer. Uh, if he did convince her to walk with him, I bet he made up some bullshit story to get her to feel sorry for him. Uh, he's, maybe he's looking for his little sister or maybe his dog got lost or something. He wasn't, you know, very clever. He truly was intellectually limited, but he also definitely was able to manipulate some victims, able to lie in various cases, definitely able to trick people into going on to walks with him or coming to his apartment. He also definitely uh, hid their remains, covered his tracks so he wouldn't get caught. So who knows? Maybe he was able to convince her somehow to go on a walk with him. Anyway, once they'd walked a short distance, no one else was around. Kroll said he attempted to kiss Ermgard and she resisted his advance. I'm sure it was just abrupt and out of nowhere again. Uh, and this pissed the little psycho off. And she was like, what are you doing? Angered by her actions, he wrestled her uh, to the ground out in the woods, got her down, you know, quickly stabbed her four times in the neck with a knife he'd brought with him. 
Then the strange little pervert grabbed her by her bloody throat, strangled her with her own bra. Once he was certain she was dead, now he began to grope and defile her body sexually. Finally attempted to penetrate her vagina with his penis, and then he prematurely ejaculated. Then he remained with her body long enough to ejaculate again inside of her. Then things got even crazier. Making cuts similar to a butcher, he opened up her abdomen, spilled her guts as though she were that first pig he saw slaughtered. In various sources, it is said that he disemboweled her. Then in an ultimate act of contempt for some stranger who had done nothing to him other than reject his out-of-nowhere sexual advances, he defecated on her semen-covered bloody corpse. Seriously, he took a shit on her remains. What the fuck? Clearly smart enough to have some real anger issues. Uh, clearly, he built up some rage towards women over the years. Uh, maybe angry also about his premature ejaculation, sexual issues. Uh, when Ermgard failed to arrive at her parents' house for lunch, they immediately knew that something had gone wrong. Search party, which included almost every able-bodied person living in the small hamlet, was formed that afternoon by her worried mother and father. Didn't take them long to find her remains. According to some accounts, on the same day she went missing, only hours after she'd been killed, Ermgard's uh, body was found around 3 p.m. Her remains were partially hidden by the snow-covered brush that surrounded them. Her body was only a few hundred feet from the road where she'd ran into Yachim Kroll. Yachim, sorry, I'll keep on put a K in there. In other accounts, she was found two days after she went missing. Either way, the brutality and sheer spite of the act horrified the officers and everyone else who found out about it. Uh, a large amount of semen was found uh, in her vagina as well as on her abdomen and pubic hair, a finding which randomly helped Kroll evade detection. This detail is so strange and disturbing. There was so much semen. Officials were convinced that the crime was committed by a gang, by a group of men. Residents, especially single women, were quickly warned by police that if they must travel alone to avoid groups of young men, no one had any idea that a single individual was to blame for this crime. Only after he was arrested decades later would authorities learn of Kroll's nearly insatiable sexual appetite and the copious amounts of semen he produced. Why does that detail make him so much creepier to me? What a vision. Kroll, a small, weak, dim-witted, odd-looking toilet attendant, rapist and killer, who fucks cows, gets turned on by pig slaughter, uh, who also produces copious amounts of semen. Imagine any of that on a dating profile. Hello, my name is Joachim. <laughs> YK. His name needs to, like, it's, it's because his name is spelled, by the way, I keep messing that up, J-O-A-C-H-I-M, and it's pronounced Yahim. Ah, it's not visually, I'm just, every time my brain's like, K, 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 but not, not that kind of K, but, but it's just the C-H wants me to go, K, nope, okay, <laughs> but anyway, now that I've ruined this joke, imagine that on a dating profile, hi, my name's Yahim, uh, I clean toilets by day, and I fill vaginas at night with copious amounts of semen, uh, ready to party, ready to mingle, uh, dude's a ghoul. To make his murder even more tragic, the autopsy report shows that uh, Ermgard was in the early stages of pregnancy. Her parents didn't even know, so technically he killed two people. Uh, what an extra emotional uppercut for them to deal with. First, their 19-year-old daughter goes missing. Then possibly only hours later, they find out that she's been raped and murdered and also shit on. Then they find out uh, in the next day or two that she was pregnant with their grandchild. This makes any bad week I've ever had pale in comparison. Uh, when the officer started to piece a little bit's evidence together, they believed that not only was the crime carried out by a group, but that it was a well-organized and planned out act of sadism. Certainly not the work of some intellectually challenged cow fucker um, mad about his mom dying. Uh, they had rudimentary blood and semen samples, but in the 1950s, DNA evidence long way from becoming part of criminal investigations. In fact, DNA uh, wouldn't be used in a criminal investigation until 1986. 
Best they could do at this time was identify the blood type and compare it against suspects. But when you don't really have any suspects, it's, you know, pretty useless. Uh, 68 area sex offenders rounded up, questioned, uh, narrowed to a pool of 32 suspects, investigated further, Kroll not amongst the group. Uh, they would narrow the investigation down to one sex offender, but they weren't able to gather enough evidence to charge the sex offender with the crime, you know, because they because they didn't do it. Uh, this cow fucker would, would never be on the police for, uh, police's radar for any of the murders outside of his last killing, the one that got him caught. By the way, love being able to call him cow fucker and have it be an accurate descriptive term. Not often, not often you get to tell a dark tale about a literal cow fucker. Uh, according to later counts, Yahim was nervous about, uh, or I'm sorry, Yahim never nervous, not ever nervous about getting caught for this murder, uh, overjoyed with what he'd done after the killing. It was the first time he'd had sex with a human woman, uh, no longer alive when he had sex with her, but still excited about the experience. This new form of sexual release gave him a new sense of self-confidence and a feeling of power, and he soon began to crave this feeling again. Like many serial killers before him and after, uh, Yahem had now entered into a horrific cycle of demented, sadistic sexual fantasies that he craved with growing intensity, fantasies he obsessed over. Once he finally gave into his urges and scratched this new monstrous itch, the itch would just begin to grow once more, and the fantasies would build in their intensity all over again, leading towards another fatal release. Fantasize, kill, repeat. When not killing anyone, young Yahem becomes a popular figure in his neighborhood, at least with area children. So that's fun. Now when he's not killing, he's handing out candy to the kitties. Uh, he made friends with many of the kids in the neighborhood around his small flat in a large apartment complex in Deesburg, uh, known uh, to always have a little candy on him. He'd hand out to the local youth. He did this so often, he was given the nickname of Uncle Yahim. He is a caricature of a creepy son of a bitch. One of the documentaries on this guy, uh, the dramatic reenactment scenes seem uh, poorly and lazily put together, unless you know his story. And then they seem perfectly accurate. He's portrayed as an unbelievably creepy looking dude. Like over-the-top creepy looking. There's this loner working as this janitor, you know, little, little feeble-looking, beady, shifty eyes, big dumbo ears. Always looks greasy. Never talks to the adults. Only seems to light up around kids who he gives candy. Like it's like the stereotypical image of the creepy pedophile killer rapist. Yahim was that stereotype. That's exactly who he was. We've covered a lot of killers here who have blended into society really well. People who are smart, manipulative. People whose communities were shocked. When they were finally apprehended, no one was shocked when Yahim was caught. Some of them were surprised. Some of them were surprised, but not shocked because he looked exactly like the kind of dude who did the shit we're talking about. And if you're thinking, what kind of dirtbag fucks cows and takes a shit on his rape and murder victim and then hands out candy to kids, look him up. Do a Google image search. And when you see a picture, you'll be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that totally fits. Uh, he reminds me out of the serial killers we've covered so far is some kind of mashup of Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Gein, Albert Fish. Uh, mentally slow and, and just really ghoulish, like a ghoulish mama's boy like, like Gein was. Dahmer, uh, like, like him, is in, in the sense that not super intelligent and uh, shares Dahmer's sexual depravity and as well, as well, as we'll soon explore, his cannibalistic interests. Also shared Fish's cannibalistic interests and overall just creepy sexual debauchery. Uh, Uncle Yahim would live in the same flat for many years, and he <laughs> to make it, it just keeps getting creepier. I've, I've, I've gone over this story so many times, and I keep forgetting how creepy it gets. <laughs> He's living in this flat. He's who I'd already described. And he fills, his, uh, he fills his flat with dolls, toys, and candy. Yeah, yep. Dolls, toys, and candy for the neighborhood kids, who he would often invite into play. He loved the attention, especially of little girls in the neighborhood, who in turn loved to, to play with his collection, his, numerous, his, big, his large collection of many child-sized dolls, big, big dolls. 
Unbeknownst to these little girls and their families, uh, Uncle Yahim would use these dolls when no one else was around to practice strangling and fucking little girls. Mm -hmm. He would strangle and fuck the dolls. Uh, he also had a big uh, blow-up doll, a big sex doll that he uh, would purchase here pretty soon, and he would practice strangling and, and fucking that as well. He's cartoonishly disturbing. When he's not fucking cows, he's, he's fucking dolls. I know it was a different time, but why would you ever let a little girl go play alone in this dude's apartment? Like, like I know they didn't know exactly who he was. You know, maybe they weren't as familiar with tales of people like Yahim as I am. But, but still, just some weird dude. Why? Uh, one of the sources said that the parents of these kids thought of the little dingy-looking brown-eyed man as being a, uh, a rather sweet fellow. who just wanted a family of his own. And, you know, wasn't able to have one, so they took pity on him. And they, and they just didn't see him as a threat. Uh, some of them trusted him to take their little kids on walks around the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, despite what Kroll did to numerous other young girls who became victims of his hidden sadistic side, uh, neighbor children would always come home safe and happy, usually full of candy, uh, at least until this final murder victim. They, they did. Uh, some neighbors felt that the time he spent lavishing affection and gifts on neighborhood children was all done in an effort to fill the lonely void in his heart after his mother's death. That is just not the conclusion I would make. I guess I just have a more negative view of humanity in some senses. Anytime I meet an adult who seems more interested in hanging around the kids uh, at a get-together than with the other adults, uh, my dirtbag radar immediately goes off. Maybe they're just really good with kids. Or maybe they want to fuck some kids. Uh, I'm probably overly paranoid, but I'd rather be paranoid than negligent in this particular area. Uh, Yahim himself would later say that he never harmed any children that he believed were his true friends. Weird. Uh, he said he looked at these little girls as his nieces, and they brought him joy, and they made him smile. And he never, ever thought about him when he was choking out his blow -up doll or when he was coming on one of his, you know, child-sized dolls or when he's banging a cow. Gosh dang. Uh, oh, whew. Yeah. Um, 1959, four years after the rape and murder of 19-year-old Ermgard, Kroll kills a second woman later definitively tied to him. Most people familiar with this case seem to think he for sure killed uh, others in that four-year window. Two girls, both named Erica, one only 12 years old, were raped and strangled in the area in this time frame. Kroll just couldn't remember killing them when he was caught years later. Uh, Kroll did remember Clara Frieder Tesmer, though. Clara was just 24 years old when she was raped and murdered in the meadows of the Rhine near Rheinhausen. She was another blonde like Ermgard. Kroll desired blondes the most. She died on, yeah, June 16th. Maybe if he could have just found a, a sweet cow with hair like a blonde bombshell like Marilyn Monroe or Jean Harlow, maybe he would have never killed anyone. Maybe he would have just been a reclusive farmer, rumored to uh, keep a bed in the barn. Claire was simply out walking when Kroll came across her. Years later in his confession, Kroll said he approached her and then he grabbed her by the arm. He was hoping to walk off into the bushes and fool around, but for some crazy reason, for some crazy doesn't make sense reason, she just didn't want to wander off into the weeds and fuck a weirdo uh, in the dirt. Uh, ha, women, right? <laughs> so hard to figure out. Uh, because she wasn't crazy, Claire resisted, tried to pull away. This enraged Kroll, he punched her in the head, knocked her down. Then when Kroll attempted to undress the stunned Clara, she fought back. The two rolled down a small incline, off the road and out of view. Down there in the brush, Kroll then strangled Clara to death. Once she was dead, Kroll raped her. This time, uh, only deposited a normal amount of semen on the crime scene. Must have uh, been dehydrated that day. Maybe he'd already had sex with his dolls a bunch of times that morning. Uh, he decides to try something new with a lifeless human body then. He thinks, as only a psychopath can, that Clara looks delicious. Takes out a big knife he apparently always had on him. Carved out pieces of uh, flesh from her buttocks and thighs. Wrapped the meat in a piece of fabric ripped from her dress. Took it home with him and then cooked her flesh up and ate it. And then probably fucked his blow up doll a time or two. And uh, got a good night's rest so he wouldn't be too tired working his toilet tenant job next day. This is all so disturbing it doesn't even seem real. 
Clara's body was later discovered by some young boys riding their bikes in the area. These poor kids, how many nightmares did they have later? Having no real reason to believe the murder of Clara was connected with the murder of Ermgard four years prior, investigators did not link the two crimes together. They had no idea that an active serial killer was responsible for both these murders. Um, they did believe that the murder, uh, they had no idea that he, that this serial killer was responsible for the They actually did think this murder might have been the work of a serial killer. I should rephrase here. Uh, just a different one. In their search for Clara's killer, police zeroed in on Heinrich Ott, a 37-year-old mechanic who was arrested for her murder. He had been on the police's radar for a while. They'd come to suspect him in a series of rapes and murders, which had taken place in the surrounding area in the years preceding Clara's death. Perhaps he was guilty of some of the killings he was accused of committing, perhaps not. Uh, he was never found guilty of any of these murders. Heinrich Ott uh, would commit suicide by hanging himself in his cell while waiting for his trial to begin for a murder he did not commit, the murder that Kroll committed. Uh, this was all the proof law enforcement and her family needed to believe that he was the killer at the time. And, and he'll be the first of many men to take the fall for Yahim's crimes. So once again, this dirty old cow fucker, Yahim, he gets away with murder. And he tastes human flesh for the first time that we know of. His confidence, his obsession with rape and murder grows. He now also craves uh, eating human flesh and he attacks again just a few weeks later. On July 26, 1959, a girl named Manuela Knott, just 16 years old, found raped and strangled in a park in the nearby city of Essen, 20 miles away from where Clara Tesmer was killed. Once again, slices of flesh had been carved from her buttocks and thighs. Meat Kroll took home and again consumed. Also, once again, an enormous, copious amount of semen is found on the victim's body. That is so cringy. So much semen is left at the crime scene that local officials again are convinced that a gang of men had to have been involved. How much could this creep come? I just, I just, I wish I could stop picturing just gallons of semen at the crime scenes. Just a small, creepy little dude with these cantaloupe-sized balls, just sprinkler coming all over the place. Gonna make myself throw up. Dear diary, today is July 26, 1959. It's a great day. I went on a nice date with the girl I met at the park. All of the sexy, four-legged cow lady section has really paid off. Doesn't matter how many times I premature ejaculate. There's always more. There's always more semen. It's like a, it's like all of my insides are nothing but semen. Uh, again, no connections made between this crime and other Kroll uh, murders. And again, someone else is blamed. Seven months later, February 23rd, 1960, for reasons that are never really explained, 23-year-old Horst Otto walks into a police station and confesses to the murder he did not commit of Manuela. Guessing he was mentally ill, excuse me there, uh, arrested, charged with murder. Although he quickly withdraws his confession, he is convicted, serves five years in prison before being released in April of 1965 after a series of appeals. Uh, Kroll is the king of other people getting blamed for his murders. 1960, Kroll moves into a new apartment at 24 Friesen Street in Duisburg, working a new janitorial job for Thyssen Industries, a huge German industrial engineering and steel production company based in Duisburg. Kroll will remain here until his arrest many years later. Also will be warned by his landlord at one point that if he's ever caught bringing young girls into his apartment again, uh, as neighbors had complained he had done on two occasions, he will be kicked out. So, awkward. Apparently some people back then were on to old Uncle Yahim. Not everyone trusted this creep. April 23rd, 1962, in all likelihood, Kroll strikes again. Petra Geese killed on Easter Monday in a forest north of Deesburg. The 13-year-old, strangled and raped, her dead body left in the bushes. She had been visiting a nearby carnival with a friend, had become separated from her. Kroll led her into the woods. Her body was found the day after she was killed by a search party. 
Just like with multiple other Kroll victims, some of her flesh had been removed. She was missing both buttocks as well as her left arm. My God. Also been raped. And I'm not making this up to make this uh, episode extra obscene again. Once more, preposterous amount of semen found on the crime scene. Uh, And again, someone else took the fall for the crime. 52-year-old Vincenze Kuhn, a single man who worked as a minor, was arrested for Petra's murder. Why Kuhn? Uh, For starters, the small car he drove, a uh, a glass Isar. No idea if I'm saying that right. The only YouTube videos I could find uh, where it was talked about were in Russian or German. And everything they said in these videos sounded roughly the same to me. Uh, This odd-looking little car uh, was the kind a farmer claimed to have seen the day of the murder near the spot where Petra's body was found. Checking motor vehicle records, police discovered that only 522 of these vehicles were owned in the area. Of that number, all of the vehicle owners had alibis that were verified their whereabouts, uh, that verified their whereabouts at the time of the crime, other than uh, this Kuhn fella. Also, Kuhn had a criminal record, one that made him uh, seem like a likely suspect for the type of crime with which he stood accused of. Uh, He was a convicted sex offender who had already spent time behind bars for molesting young girls. So I don't feel too bad for him getting blamed for this murder. In previous crimes, Kuhn had developed a method he used repeatedly. He waited for girls in parks, other places where kids hung out, uh, you know, places where parents wouldn't be with them. He'd lure girls to a private area with candy. That didn't work. He'd offer them money. Then he'd try talking them into taking off their panties, allowing him to give them lessons in masturbation, and then he would masturbate. He was a sick fuck. Maybe not quite as sick as Uncle Yahim, but a a very sick fuck still. And now the police assumed he'd escalated from masturbation to murder. Some criminal psychologists were consulted, and they stated that they thought it was very possible for a man who had engaged in that type of perverse behavior with young girls to potentially get carried away and end up, you know, becoming a rapist or murderer. They theorized that Kuhn had lost control of himself, raped Petra, and then upon realizing what he had done, attempted to cover up his actions by murdering her, and then mutilated her body to make law enforcement believe these actions were uh, someone else's, some other sadistic sex murder, someone like Yahim Kroll. Uh, Kuhn was charged with rape, murder, and mutilation. Faced with no evidence he had committed the crime other than just not having an alibi and just uh, being a convicted pervert, jury did find him guilty. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, along with a regimen of psychiatric treatments designed to, quote, rid him of his unnatural interest in little girls and convert him into a useful member of society. That sounds like a ridiculous premise to me. I know he was actually innocent of this crime, but if a justice system convicts someone of raping, killing, and carving up the body of a little girl, how can that same justice system actually think that that person can ever become a useful member of society again? You know, just uh, Gunther used to rape, kill, and carve up little girls, but not anymore. Now he's an Olympic swim coach with three gold medalists under his tutelage who also started a very successful nonprofit dedicated to providing scholarships for underprivileged youth. (laughs) I'd let him babysit my kids anytime. Get the fuck out of here. I wonder how many people who are in favor of rehabilitating uh, these types of people would actually let those people babysit their own kids or their own grandkids. I'm going to guess zero. I'm going to guess zero percent. Uh, Kuhn's psychiatric treatments ended when he was released from prison six years later, having served only half a sentence. Uh, and this guy, a jury, totally believed raped and killed and sliced up a 13-year-old, a guy who was already convicted pedophile before being found guilty that time, uh, sent back out into society after six years. So that's super cool. Uh, Police believed he continued his pursuit of young girls after his release, uh, but no additional victims did ever come forward. Uh, Just six weeks after the murder that sent another man to prison, Cal Fucker Kroll kills again. Uh, Before we go over the details of that heinous murder, time for a quick sponsor break, uh, a little welcome escape from the darkness. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. 
Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now we are back in June of 1962. 29-year-old Joachim Kroll has been killing in Germany for over seven years now. On June 4th, 1962, Monica Toffel, just 12 years old, killed just outside her hometown of Walsam, just a bit north of Duisburg. Killed in much the same way as Petra Geese and those before her, Monica's body discovered seven days later on June 11th by a police helicopter. Her body, like many other Kroll victims, not hidden. Her remains lying on the ground in part of the forest, uh, part the search parties had, uh, you know, uh, yet to explore. Before they found her, Monica had been strangled to death before being stripped naked, raped, masturbated over. Although not stated with this crime, guessing a more than healthy amount of semen was found. As with prior victims, parts of her flesh have been stripped away, including her buttocks. Uh, no connection made with prior cases. Local authorities were just, uh, you know, not in contact uh, with, you know, the Deesburg Police Department, just 14 kilometers, less than 10 miles away. Law enforcement departments just didn't communicate with each other uh, very often back then. If they had, perhaps the similarities between Monica's murder and at least three other girls who had been raped, strangled, and had flesh cut from their bodies would have been discovered. Uh, authorities already had a suspect for Monica's murder, and you guessed it, wasn't Kroll. The king the king of other people getting blamed for his murders. Uh, this time, the murder was blamed on a local 34-year-old steelworker named Walter Quicker. Quicker was a dude suspected to be a perv, known for having an unnatural interest in little girls. He was taken in as a suspect by police after witnesses came forward to say they'd seen him in the company of a young girl on the day of Monica's murder. Quicker vehemently denied the allegations, then authorities produced information showing him that he was known in his community for possessing, a, again, a, quote, unnatural interest in young girls. That is kind of just a, the phrasing is kind of weird to me. Like, uh, it wasn't crimes, just unnatural interest. Ah, da, 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 da. Like when he denies it, they're just like, they just show a bunch of pictures, like him roller skating with some girls, you know, him sharing an ice cream cone with some girls. They're like, that's very, very unnatural. It's very unnatural for these things to be happening with you. Um, yeah, so they, they confront him with evidence and uh, talk about somehow some of his actions in the past had made fellow townspeople suspicious and then quicker admitted that he was fond of girls, but he insisted his fondness was not of a sexual nature. He said he'd always wanted a daughter, and uh, he and his wife were just unable to have one, and thus he lavished attention on other people's little girls. I guess that is possible, but if some grown-ass man I didn't know was trying to hang out with my 12-year-old daughter you know, and told me it's because he didn't have kids of his own, just wanted a little girl to dote on, I'm going to tell him to fuck off. Go, go find some other vicarious daughter. Fucking weirdo. Not going to roll the pedo dice. Uh, to Quicker's credit, police questioned dozens of young girls in Walsam. Every single one of them denied that Walter Quicker had ever behaved inappropriately with him. Now, one single kid did have a bad word to say about Quicker. This ruined the case against him for the police, who then did release him from custody. Being released did not, though, stop the townspeople from persecuting him and deciding to punish him 
when law enforcement didn't. Following his release, his wife divorces him on the grounds that she could not stand the disgrace of, quote, being married to a child molester. Yikes. That looks bad. You would think his wife would know his intentions. She would obviously know if they'd been trying to have a daughter or not. She would know if he was torn up about it. And if she knew that, why would she suddenly suspect him of being a molester? It's a bad look. People began to jeer and spit it quicker on the street. Shopkeepers refused to serve him. When he leaves the house, youngsters would actually run behind him and ask him how many little girls he'd raped that day. It's real bad. Then on October 5th, 1962, just five months after Monica Tafel's murder, Walter Quicker walks into the forest with a clothesline and hangs himself near the very same spot Monica's body had been found. And all this did was keep police off the trail of Yahim Kroll. Everyone was now positive that Quicker did it. And if he really was just a dude who wished he had a little girl of his own, I mean, how incredibly sad. Uh, when Yahim Kroll read about this in the news, he celebrated by fucking three cows in a nearby field. Had himself a nice little bovine orangey. orgy. Then he drank some real fresh milk, hurried home, spooned one of his dolls, and slept like a creepy baby. Uh, kidding, of course. Uh, Yahim was illiterate. Uh, not kidding about that. Uh, he would later admit to uh, having no idea all these other dudes were taking the falls for his crimes. How extra strange. Uh, Yahim was now, in addition to the murders, guilty of sending three guys into jail cells for crimes they didn't commit. One of these dudes killed himself in jail, and then another guy kills himself after the court of public opinion convicts him of being someone uh, or of killing someone that Kroll had actually killed. It's, ah, it's absurd. The month before Walter Quicker's suicide in September of 1952, Yahim attacked his next known victim, 12-year-old girl named Barbara Bruder, vanished on September 3rd from Berschied Klein, Klein Hamburg, just a bit south of Duisburg. Uh, Kroll later said that just like with the others, he'd strangled and raped her. She was on her way to a playground in Lutzenkirchen when she disappeared and her body was never found. What else did he do to her? Information not available. I have to imagine probably the same horrible shit we've already been talking about. Uh, it would be three years before Kroll definitely killed again. Upon his arrest, he would state that after murdering Monica, the next murder he could remember was not until 1965. Uh, however, investigators believe there were likely more murders during these years that just, uh, well, you know, probably never be pinned on Kroll. Kroll would tell investigators that too much time had passed and he just simply couldn't remember killing anyone during that time. And how crazy is that if it's true? That killing was such a casual and common thing for Kroll that he could just forget how many people he killed. Like, uh, like you know, you might be able to forget, you know, what you had for lunch two weeks ago. Kroll did remember the murder in 1965 and uh, he said he remembered it because it was the only time he killed a man. And he only killed a man because that man got in the way of him trying to kill a woman. On August 22nd, 1965, 25-year-old Herman Hermann Schmidt and his 18-year-old fiancée, Marion Wien, parked at a lover's lane in Grossenbaum, just south of Duisburg. They, uh, the area had originally been a large rock quarry, but after the pit was no longer needed, it was filled with water, formed an artificial lake. Along the shore of this fake lake, under an autumn moon, these two young lovebirds were enjoying a little makeout session. And then a dirty little German cowfucker showed up and did a lot more than just ruin their night. Grohl had left his apartment that Sunday night around 6 and arrived by tram in uh, Grossenbaum approximately three hours later, uh, clearly looking for someone to violate and kill, looking to satisfy his dark desires. Grohl had exited the tram, started following various women and girls along the streets of the town, hoping for an opportunity to present itself, uh, you know, like the creep he was. Then he remembered the gravel pit lake, having visited it before and making a mental note that young couples parking there like to fool around. He probably uh, deposited copious amounts of semen around his, uh, this lake, thinking about these uh, young lovers or around his apartment. Yeah, Kroll also remembered, I'm not making this up, that he, he did used to jerk off near this lake. So he probably, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. He used to sneak off 
into this area at night and indulged in some voyeuristic fantasies. He had been here before. He had hidden in the bushes near cars where people were fooling around and he would just uh, watch and listen and he would just beat off in the bushes. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you based a character in a movie off of this guy, it wouldn't be believable. It'd be, it'd be too over the top. You know, people coming out of that movie be like, I don't really like it. Just, I don't, no, it just wasn't believable. I mean, I, I get it. He's deranged. He's a creep. He had beady eyes, big ears. He always looked greasy. You know, it's too much. It doesn't happen in real life. Come on, I didn't need to see him sneaking out into a pasture and fuck all those cows. I definitely didn't need to see him leave a, like a pool of semen at the crime scene. And he really, and he also lures kids into his apartment with candy. Uh-huh. And he chokes his blow-up doll. Okay. And he jerks off in the bushes at the makeout spot. Come on, that's lazy writing. Uh, this night in August of 1965, Kroll originally intended, uh, he would say later, just, just to jerk off in the bushes again. Uh, but then, according to what he told officers, he got himself all worked up, got himself worked in such a frenzy that mere masturbation just wasn't going to cut it. When he observed the 25-year-old and his young fiance, Kroll decided he needed to rape and kill Marion. He was really, really attracted to her. But first, he had to do something about her, uh, Herman. He had to find a way to eliminate him from the equation. Hoping that he could lure Herman outside the car, he used his large pocket knife he always carried around to stab his right front tire. Kroll hoped that Herman would try and change the tire, then maybe need to walk somewhere to get help. Uh, then he would hopefully also leave Marion in the car alone. When he walked, he'll get help. Then Kroll thought he could kill her. And if you're like, that's a terrible plan. Now you're right. Now you're right. I mean, again, he is intellectually challenged. He was not a criminal mastermind. Instead of leaving the car, Herman just, Herman just began to drive away. Uh, and then, had Herman been more familiar with the area, as Kroll was, his life might have been spared. Unfortunately, Herman missed his turn, drove directly into a dead-end road, less than 100 yards from where he was parked. Uh, when Herman turned his car around, started to drive back to where he'd been parked, Kroll was now standing in the road, waved him down. And really, unfortunately, Herman did not see Kroll as a threat. He saw a scruffy little man, shabby clothes, unshaved face, must need some help. Herman was a big dude, large athletic build. Kroll barely stood to his shoulder. Uh, Kroll's height, not listed anywhere, but based on pictures and videos I found that show him standing side by side with other people. I put him around 5'4", five, 5'6", five, maybe around 120, 130 pounds. When Herman pulled up to Kroll, uh, he got out of the car to see what the matter was. Marion, watching through the windshield as her fiancé approached this stranger, saw the two men exchange a few words. Then she suddenly saw something bright and metallic flash in the stranger's hand. As soon as Herman got within reach of Kroll, Uncle Yahim stabbed him several times. Her eyes wide with terror, Marion watched the love of her life being stabbed repeatedly in the chest as blood flew from the knife's sharp surface and long dart to crim crimson. Kroll was beyond excited that he was pulling this off as Herman fell to the ground and began to pass out, blood pouring out of his body rapidly. Kroll focuses his attention on Marion. Thinking quickly, Marion jumps into the driver's seat, drives full speed ahead directly at Kroll, who barely manages to jump out of the way in time, uh, landed in some of his jerk-off bushes. Marion then somehow jams a, a hair clip into the car horn, causing it to blare continuously. Kroll, shocked by his first encounter with the victim who, who fights back like Marion does, panics, flees into the darkness on foot. Poor Marion then leaps out of the car, rushes over to Herman, uh, who now lays surrounded by a pool of his own blood. The postmortem conducted later showed that the first stab had pierced his heart. He was still barely alive when Marion sank her knees, uh, you know, beside him onto the dirt road, gently lifted his head onto her, onto her lap struggling in his last fleeting moments of life to speak to the woman he adored, all that ushered forth from his mouth was a final gasp. When a couple responding to her blaring car horn arrived, they found Marion cradling Herman's lifeless body, the front of her dress saturated with his blood. Herman Schmitz would be Kroll's only male victim, at least the only one he actually killed himself. 
Uh, Grossenbaum was part of the Duisburg Police District, and area officers quickly responded to the scene. Unfortunately, they just didn't have many clues to work with to find the killer. Marion's description of the assailant was not great. She'd only briefly seen his face in the headlights. The police were able to collect casts of the shape of the knife from the wounds in Hermann Schmidt's chest. But until they had a knife to compare you know, the, the, this with, it was not going to do the investigators any good. Police brought in several men previously known to frequent Lover's Lane and spy on couples. I can't believe that was like a regular thing that a lot of dudes did. None of those men matched Marion's description. And when uh, questioned, none panned out as possible suspects. Not knowing anything about Kroll and his motive for the murder, police theorized that perhaps the murder was perpetrated by a jealous ex-lover of either Herman or Marion. Friends of the couple were brought in, also questioned about anyone who they thought might have had a reason to want Herman dead. No one could think of anyone like that. Uh, all of this led exactly nowhere. And then the case quickly made its way to the cold case files. Yahim Kroll, still free to murder again, and he's still not on law enforcement radar. Kroll's next confirmed kill occurred just over a year later on September 13th, 1966. It was a Tuesday afternoon when Kroll was done with work. He boarded a train, traveled to the town of Marl, approximately 40 miles northeast of Deesburg, where he immediately began his now normal routine of prowling the streets in pursuit of a victim. Around seven o'clock, after not finding anyone that gave him any funny feelings, he decided to go to a local park or uh, Forster Bush Park, where he hid in the bushes. And of course he hides in the bushes. And of course he hides in the, in the bushes at a park. Again, this, this dirty cow fucker is too much. He's a, he's a real life over the top after school special. Creepy looking rapist and murderer hiding in the bushes at a park. Waiting to get his funny feelings, uh, you know, resolved by depositing copious amounts of semen on another victim. After fondling himself in the bushes for a while, he got really horny. and He became so aroused, he said he decided to attack the next female who passed by regardless of her age or looks. Just then, 20-year-old Ursula Rowling began to walk through the park. All these stories are sad. This is especially sad, this, the totality of this particular uh, murder. Uh, she'd been at the Capri Ice Cream Parlor earlier that evening where she'd met up with her fiancé, 27-year-old Adolf uh, Schickel. These poor bastards. Uh, they'd just spent an hour and a half discussing their upcoming nuptials. When it began to grow dark, Ursula decided to head home, and the shortest route would take her through Forster, uh, Forster Bush Park, and right into the waiting arms of Kroll. So sad, enjoying ice cream, talking about, you know, her wedding with her fiance one minute, then being attacked by Kroll just a few minutes later. This is what Kroll later told police happened that night. He said, I saw this woman in the park. She was young with short hair. I spoke to her. Then I grabbed her around the neck with my right arm, dragged her into the bushes. I threw her on the ground on her back and choked her. Asked why he immediately began to choke her. If he really just wanted to rape her, Kroll replied, she could have fought me. Then I couldn't have done it. Anyway, she could have told it was me. I choked her until she stopped moving. Then I took off her pants and other things, and I did it to her. I left her lying there and took the train back to Deesburg. When I got home, I was still hot, and I had it with a doll, and I did it with my hand a couple of times. This guy was a fucking monster, just a weird, horny monster. I bet he banged that doll like several times a day, every day. I feel, I feel like whatever adults must have ever walked into his apartment, they had to have thought, man, it stinks in here. What is that smell? Is that old cum? I think it is. This place reeks of so much old cum. It, it reeks of a copious amount of old cum. Uh, might as well note here that unlike many serial killers, Kroll, not interested in his victims once he was done with them, nor the, the media coverage or the investiga investigation of the murder that followed, one reason why it was difficult for Kroll to later remember all of his crimes is because he just didn't take much interest in his victims. He rarely knew you know, what their names were. He seemed to have little or no fear uh, uh, that the police would one day learn about all this. 
It's like his intellectual limits helped him in some ways. If there was a movie about Kroll, there would be no scene of someone walking into his apartment, coming across newspaper clippings about a bunch of murdered women. There would be no scene where people were talking about a recent murder victim and he, and he perked up when he walked by to, you know, to listen a little, little more, maybe join the conversation. No scene of police seeing him return to the site of one of his kills to savor it. No, he just, he would satisfy his sexual urge, then leave the area and then just kind of go on about his life as if nothing had ever happened. If Kroll had checked the newspapers the next day, he would have discovered that nothing was reported about the death of Ursula Rowling. Ursula, not even initially reported as missing. Her parents, upon realizing that their daughter would not return home from uh, her meeting with Adolf, first called him, uh, then they called the police. And then her body was found two days later by a park employee. And the strange, terrible pattern of someone else being blamed for Kroll's murders continued. This is especially bad. Third man will soon kill himself for being blamed for one of Kroll's crimes. Ursula's fiance. Adolf Schickel is now suspected of her murder, taken into custody. This poor son of a bitch. He is held under continuous interrogation for three weeks. His story never wavers. He tells police over and over that he and Ursula met at the ice cream shop, which is what they did. They talked about their wedding. She went home alone. He went to his place. For three long weeks, he kept repeating the same phrases. Why would I kill Ursula? I loved her. We're getting married. Why would I do such a thing? The police, I find this a little odd, but whatever. They thought his motive for the murder was sex. They thought he raped his fiance because she wanted to wait for marriage for sex and that he didn't want to wait any longer. And then after he raped her, he killed her. Uh, this accusation completely ignored the facts of the case. The postmortem had concluded that Ursula had been raped after she was killed. Friends informed the police that Ursula and Adolf were already having sex, often spending the night together. Despite this information, police still believe Adolf had murdered his fiance. They only released him from custody once they realized they just don't have enough evidence. They don't have any legal grounds to continue to hold him any longer. Like Walter Quicker before him, Adolf Schickel now deals with the police and townspeople still thinking he's guilty of rape and murder. He's persecuted. He's ostracized by his, you know, neighbors. Uh, he eventually leaves Marl a few weeks later because of all the negative attention. Then on January 4th, 1967, less than four months after his fiance's murder, depressed by Ursula's death, depressed by all of the horrible accusations that follow him, Adolf drowns himself in the fucking river. The curse of Yahim Kroll claims another victim. While Adolf is growing more and more despondent and suicidal, leading to his drowning death, Yahim Kroll is preparing to kill again. He's forgotten all about Ursula. He's hunting a new victim. Very, very young victim. Let's back up a little over a month. Or I'm not, not even, sorry. Let's back up just a few weeks. Uh, December 22nd, 1966, just three days before she was going to unwrap her presents, little five-year-old Ilona Harke found dead. Her death, a result of some of Kroll's spur-of-the-moment morbid curiosity. Uh, Kroll simply wonders one day, uh, what it would be like to drown someone? So he abducts a little girl from Essen, 50 miles east of Diesburg. Uh, Might have gained her trust with some candy or a doll. Same way he'd won over neighbor's daughter's trust. Uh, he couldn't remember. He took her on a train 23 miles south to uh, Wuppertal. And there he walks her over to a river and drowns her. Then he rapes her body, cuts several pounds of flesh from her shoulders and buttocks, and, you know, takes that home and eats it. You know, at one point in the research of Kroll, I thought, am I going to feel bad about making fun of this guy because of his low IQ? And then I read details like this. And I'm like, no, oh, no, fuck him. He's plenty smart enough to know that drowning an innocent five-year-old was beyond wrong, and he did it anyway because he wanted to sexually satisfy himself. That was more important to him than her life. Uh, six months later, on June 22nd, 1967, one of Kroll's victims escapes with her life, an extremely rare occurrence. That 1967 summer's day, the hippie summer of love, a world away in San Francisco, California, 10-year-old Gabrielle Puetman uh, almost has her light snuffed out by a monster. 
She didn't live terribly far from Kroll. She'd seen him before. She knew him as Uncle Yahim. Uh, she'd been given a candy bar or two by Creepy Kroll before. It was a Thursday. Kroll had taken some sick leave from work to do some human hunting. Gabrielle had just gotten done with her day's classes. Kroll had always up until this point exercised extreme caution in who he preyed upon and when. He wasn't that stupid. He knew exactly how wrong what he was doing was. Again, he was careful to take precautions not to get caught. Uh, this mild afternoon in June, however, he must have, uh, you know, just cast these worries aside for, for some reason. Maybe he thought that nobody knew he had gone on a walk with Gabrielle that day. He runs into Gabrielle, not by coincidence, I'm guessing. You know, he knew uh, where she went to school. He knew her route. You know, runs into her as she's walking home from school. During their stroll, they pass next to a field of wheat. They reach a place where nobody else is in sight. He takes Gabrielle by the hand, leads her out into the middle of the field, tells her he has something to show her. Once they're far away from anybody who might stumble upon them, he takes out a collection of pornographic cartoons. Gabrielle would later say she was confused at first by what the people in the drawings were doing. But then it slowly sunk in. She got really embarrassed, uncomfortable. She actually covered her eyes with her hands. Then she felt Kroll's hand rest on her shoulder, freaked out. She starts to get up, starts to run away. Kroll grabs her, wrestles her to the ground. All the wrestling. That goes of Chikatilo here. He's not so bad. He'll make a fine wrestle coach. What's this big deal? He just, he just likes to wrestle more than an average bear. Uh, Kroll puts his hands around her neck, starts to choke her, and then making me think of the phrase, timing is everything. A bunch of sirens start to go off around them, howling all around them. The nearby coal mine was having a shift change. The area suddenly swarmed with miners returning home. Kroll, scared he's about to get caught, lets go of Gabrielle, who by that time is unconscious, uh, sneaks away thinking that she's dead. No, now she wakes up in the field later and she hurries home, doesn't speak of the incident until years later after Kroll is caught. She was careful after this incident never to go near Uncle Yahim again. Uh, when a story would break in the news, imagine how lucky she must have felt to have avoided the terrible fate of so many other girls who ended up in a secluded area with no one else around uh, other than Uncle Yahim. Yahim claims he didn't uh, try and kill again for two years after this close call. Uh, maybe not. Maybe those sirens really spooked him. Uh, he would strike again on July 12, 1969. He'd kill his oldest victim by far. That day, 61-year-old Maria Hetkin died at his hands. Kroll took another little trip from Diesburg to Essen by train, took a bus to nearby Verden for a stroll on the banks of uh, Baldini Lake. While walking around the lake, he runs into Hetkin, uh, gets another one of his funny feelings, starts talking to this poor woman, makes some sort of creepy and crude and abrupt sexual advance. She, of course, declines his offer. And he gets mad, punches her in the head, wrestles her into some bushes, and proceeds to rape and strangle her. Then he goes home, and he fucks his blow-up doll, and he uh, beats off a few more times. So what else has he been up to these past few years? Keep talking about the same type of crime. Well, besides killing and raping and eating human flesh and cleaning toilets and giving candy to kids and beating off and leaving copious amounts of semen all over the place and probably fucking a cow every now and again, uh, not much. He didn't seem to have a lot of close friends. His adult siblings apparently didn't have anything to do with him. He didn't date. He didn't hang out with coworkers. He sometimes got a new caretaking job in 1970, actually. He'd get a new job cleaning toilets in a different uh, place, a local steel mill, a local steel mill uh, that paid more than the previous job. He spoke very, very little after his eventual arrest, and there are very few details available anywhere about his personal life. And, and I don't think that's because he did a bunch of stuff that just failed to make it into articles and the papers and documentaries. I just don't think there were many details to his private life. Now, he worked, he watched TV, uh, he beat off a lot. Uh, he choked and he fucked his dolls a whole bunch. He bought a lot of candy, bought a lot of toys, trying to lure kids with. Uh, took the train to various areas within an, uh, around an hour or so of Deesburg to go on these murder walks to look for women and girls to kill and rape. And uh, that's mostly it. You know, yeah, I mean, he got a lot of other people to take the fall for his crimes, but that was just accidental. And I don't think he even knew that was happening. 
He didn't have some other cover life like a lot of serial killers. You know, he worked, he went home, he did creepy shit, and he did that for two decades. Uh, he did do one other thing, at least one other thing that came up in a documentary. At, at some point during all this madness, a date is never assigned to this, uh, he got himself a pet. Found a stray cat at work. Starts feeding it, he befriends it, uh, ends up taking this cat home. Uh, he'd later say he really, really liked this cat. And he started to like it too much. Now, then he started wondering, as a psychopathic monster is off to wonder, I wonder what this cat would look like from the inside. And then, one day when he's petting this cat, he starts to have some real funny feelings. And so he uh, he chokes it out, masturbates over its dead body, uh, chops it up, and he cooks some of it. Then he decides he doesn't care for the taste of cat, and he never has another pet again. Uh, so yeah, so that happened. Uh, did, did that really surprise anyone? I doubt it. I think it'd be surprising if he just fed it and petted it and took great care of it for a long, long time. Let's, uh, let's move on. May 21st, 1970. Now, 37-year-old Yahim kills again. Uh, Kroll kills again. Uh, that spring day, 13-year-old Jethron uh, was attacked by Kroll on her way home from a school or from school on a rainy day Thursday afternoon near where Herman Schmitz had been stabbed and killed back in 1965. Kroll spotted her at a railway station, followed her into the woods, Grabbing the young girl, dragging her deeper into the forest, he strangles her to death, removes her clothing, rapes her dead body, then Kroll being Kroll, masturbates over it. Uh, Kroll is then struck by the odd feeling that perhaps she's still alive. He uses her bra to strangle her uh, even some, some more. Judd's father and neighbors start to look for her within the hour. They search for six hours after she fails to return home for, from school. And then heartbreakingly, her dad is the one to find her nude, lifeless corpse the way Kroll had left it. Jesus Christ, what a terrible tragedy. Uh, I wish Kroll's story ended here with her dad, then finding Kroll and bashing in his tiny, disgusting cow-fucking brain with a rock or something. Uh, also now, for the sixth time, someone else is blamed for committing one of his murders. Six, six times! Neighbor Peter Shea is now arrested for Judd's murder. The only evidence against, against him is that his blood type matches Kroll's blood type. He doesn't have a good alibi. Uh, he knew Judda, and the cops thought he was, I don't know, uh, creepy, I guess. He spends 15 months in police custody for Judd's murder before finally being released due to lack of evidence. And then he'll be taunted for being a child molester around town until Kroll is finally arrested six years later. The king. The king of other people getting blamed for his murders. I have never heard of this happening anywhere near this often in any other true crime story. Maybe once or twice. You know, somebody else takes the fall for a serial killer's crimes. Not six times. And three times, the guy who didn't do it killed himself. Four times so far, dude spend time in prison for murders Kroll committed. For the next six years, Kroll would state after his eventual arrest that he did not commit any more murders. Uh, the police do not buy that at all, or the police, you know, working his case did not buy that at all. Six years, a long time for a sexually motivated killer to go without giving in to his deviant urges. And, and also during those six years, there were at least 15 unsolved sex murders in the Deesburg area, mostly children that match Kroll's modus operandi. However, Kroll adamantly insisted he went clean for those six years. He told investigators that he uh, just jerked off and had sex with his doll. <laughs> I love that he says that. No, 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 I was good. I was clean. No, I just, I just, I fucked it all a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, a lot, but that's all. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he met a nice Holstein in late 1970 and things got serious. Maybe he decided to be a one cow kind of dude for a while. And as ridiculous as I'm being there, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the truth. He's so insane. 1973, now 40-year-old Kroll develops problems with the blood vessels in his legs that slow him down. His mobility is reduced. He has a noticeable limp that lasts for the rest of his life. Doctors thought that chronic, overly aggressive masturbation may have led to his leg troubles. 
okay, it makes sense with what he's done. Uh, he apparently masturbated so frequently and actually permanently altered his circulatory system. Over the years, he had so many sustained erections, his body began to direct more and more blood flow to his penis, less and less to his legs. By the time they arrested him, Kroll's legs only received about 40% of normal leg blood flow. And the vein on his penis shaft was bigger than his carotid artery. His testicles also required an atypical amount of blood flow to keep up with ejaculation demands by the time he was in prison. His overall genital blood flow was over 600% that of a normal man. He could shoot two gallons of semen over 15 feet during an orgasm that would last anywhere from three to 15 minutes. And none of that is true. Nah, it's fucking crazy talk. Uh, other than him, other than him having leg problems, slowed him down and gave him a limp. Uh, that part, that part's true. But the other stuff kind of feels true, right? It feels a little true. Uh, despite his new disability, Kroll would kill again. Next time he definitely struck was May 8th, 1976. That day he killed 10-year-old uh, Corinne Topfer on her way to school. She was strangled, raped by Kroll in the same manner. He killed and raped so many other victims. After his arrest later, he would actually admit to this murder, but not be convicted due to a lack of convincing evidence. Two months later, Kroll would kill for the final time. He would be found guilty of this murder. There was a preposterous amount of gruesome evidence. Uh, perhaps due to the pain in his legs, making it harder for him to travel, he killed a girl he'd been seen with many, many times before. A girl who lived in his apartment building on his floor. A girl who would be his youngest known victim. On July 3rd, 1976, four-year-old... Four-year-old Marion Ketter goes missing. It was a hot afternoon. The young blonde girl, due to the heat, only wearing panties when she disappeared from outside her apartment building. She lived just a few doors down from this monster. She was outside playing in some communal grassy courtyard when, the, uh, when she disappeared. Her mom realized at about four o'clock that Marion had gone missing. She searched the area, spoke with some other children who were out playing with her. No one knew where she'd went. Her mom called the police who also spoke with the children. Police went door to door in the apartment building. Even dropped by Kroll's apartment, where everything at first appeared to be in order. The next day, one of Kroll's neighbors, Oscar Muller, went to use a building bathroom he shared with Kroll. As he went up the stairs, he ran into Kroll, who was coming down, and Kroll said to him, I would not use the toilet if I were you. It's all stopped up. When Oscar asked him what was stopping the toilet, Kroll simply replied with one word, guts. Eee! After the strange exchange, Kroll simply disappeared into his apartment. Oscar then decided to go and see what was actually wrong with the toilet. He didn't take Kroll's statement very seriously. Thought he must have been joking around in some twisted type of way. Then when he approached the toilet, he saw what indeed looked like guts in the bowl. Uh, the water was red with blood. Kroll was not kidding. Oscar wanted the toilet was full of uh, pieces of the little girl who'd gone missing from the building the day before. Unfortunately, he was right. He rushed outside of the street, approached the nearest police officer, told him what he'd seen. The officer wrenched the porcelain bowl from its mount, dumped the contents into a bucket. Inside the bucket, there were, oh, this is, oh my, I don't know why this is especially sad. The whole thing is sad. This whole episode is sad. But inside the bucket, there's a pair of small lungs, kidneys, a liver, and a heart, along with some flesh. Jesus! That sight must have haunted those dudes for the rest of their lives. Some officers then made their way back to Cole's apartment, banged on his door. When he answers, he makes no attempt to try and stop the officers from entering. Once inside, the police look around and see a scene that should only exist in some kind of super fucked up horror movie. They see what remains of Marion's little body chopped up on the kitchen table. They see a stew simmering on the stove with a tiny hand floating amidst the vegetables. Upon closer inspection, they find her entrails clogged in the sink. In the refrigerator, they find portions of a little girl's flesh laid out on several plates as though they were pre-planned meals. He was so fucking casual about all this. 
He never seemed shook by anybody. He never would express a hint of remorse, ever. Just had little girl steaks in the fridge like it was no big deal. And in the freezer, they find more body parts, more meal planning. Kroll had strangled his neighbor, masturbated over her body, butchered her, prepared to eat her. Yahim, of course, is arrested. He goes along willingly without protest. Later says he didn't think he was going to go to prison for all this. This is where his low IQ shows up again. This crazy cow fucker. He actually thought he was going to be given some kind of magical surgical procedure that would just relieve him of all his bloodthirsty desires, make him a normal dude. And then they were just going to like, uh, you know, let him go back to his apartment. You know, hey, sorry about that. Sorry about the little girl. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, shit happens. I'm, I'm better now. <laughs> let's focus. Hey, let's focus on the good part. I'm better now. Uh, there is actually a surgical procedure uh, for this. It, it's called several bullets to the brain. 100% cure rate, actually. No rapist, murderer, or pedophile has ever, to my knowledge, been shot five to 10 times into the head at, at point blank range and then gone back to being a dirty cow fucking deviant. Uh, maybe I should feel sorry for him here, but I don't. Being slow doesn't make him less guilty, right? Uh, once in jail, due to his belief that he was going to get out uh, thanks to this special op operation and uh, be released, he confesses to a total of 14 murders. Uh, he, and, and though he said there may have been more than that. He just couldn't remember clearly. Uh, he couldn't remember uh, the names of the victims. He did explain why he killed as best he could. He explained that his murderous desire started, as we talked about earlier, when he saw that pig being slaughtered, uh, roused by the blood, also admitted that he couldn't maintain an erection with the woman, at least not when she was conscious, which is why he took to raping his dead victims. Also confessed he, he tried human flesh on a whim. They liked it. And then uh, that he began to choose his victims based on uh, who he thought looked tasty. He confessed that. Also said that he engaged in cannibalism partially to save money on groceries because the price of meat was so high. Get the fuck out of here. It's the first time I've ever heard that reasoning. Why did you eat your victims? So, so I wouldn't go hungry. Have you seen the price of beef? Come on. Lady steak is cheaper than the beef steak. <laughs> it's the economy. It's the economy. That's why I did this. Uh, also told officers, uh, also told officers that um, when he'd come home from committing a murder, he would still be aroused. He would have sex, masturbate all over his rubber doll, strangling it while doing so. Some some sources refer to it as a blow-up doll. Some refer to it as a rubber doll. I guess it doesn't really matter. But if you're hearing like, wait a minute, wasn't it a blow? I don't know. It's, it was a it was a it was a human-sized sex doll of some kind. He would reenact his crimes in the doll. He would also sometimes dress his sex doll up in clothes from his victims. Uh, he couldn't remember names, you know, uh, that could lead to victim identification, though. The more and more he would talk about this stuff, still couldn't remember. Officers started to grow impatient and angry with him. So then he shuts down, refuses to speak. In order to get him to talk again, officers uh, start playing little kids' games with him, pretend to be his buddy. They're nice to him, and this guy gets him to open back up. And he tries to give them more information, but he's, he's still having trouble with the names. He's confusing many of the facts. Uh, he, he claims, you know, that he could remember the time and place where he'd committed murders, just, you know, just not the names. So the police then decide to try something super unorthodox to solve more crimes. They decide to let him take them to the scenes of his previous murders. And this is so absurd to me. And then using a female police officer, they allow him to dramatically reenact his murders. <laughs> and then they will show him a picture of, of a woman whose body had been found at that location. And then if he's like, yeah, that was her, then boom, another case solved. There's actually footage of this online because the German media was obsessed with Kroll's story. Uh, the police allowed journalists to come along with them for this reenactment to show them that they were making, you know, progress, solving some cold cases. So the media goes along. They record reenactments of the murder of Kroll's second victim, uh, Clara Tesmer, using this policewoman as a stand-in. What in the fuck? It's so disturbing to watch. Kroll acts out, grabbing the woman, taking her to the ground. You know, wrestling a little bit. The two, the two roll down a hill. 
She, she lets him put his hands on her throat. His body is pressed up against hers. I'm strongly assuming she could feel his boner. Can you imagine if some female law enforcement officer was asked to do that today? Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. I got a new assignment for you. Come, come, on, come on in here. Come into my office. Uh, y- yes, Chief. Yeah, you know that guy we just brought in who we suspect strangled, raped, and then uh, ate 14 women? Oh, yeah. No, of course. Yes. Yes, Chief. Uh, yeah, him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we want you to ride along with him. Some of the locations uh, where we found other murdered women's bodies over the past 20 years. He's going to walk out with you into the woods. He's going to wrestle you to the ground. He's going to pretend to choke you a bit. He's going to lay on top of you. He's going to he's gonna push his dirty, uh, rock-hard, cow-loving boner into your hips. He will have pants on, but you will for sure feel it. Is that a problem? Uh, no, no, no. No problem at all, Chief. No problem. Sounds like a totally reasonable and not horrifically demeaning assignment. Absolutely. Police amazed that Kroll with his low IQ had gotten away with his crime for so long. Because of a tendency to kill in many different areas, because they you know, there were actually other killers working in the same areas as Kroll at the time of his murder, or murders. Law enforcement thought that his work was that of several other people. Uh, also able to evade capture for two decades due to the irregular spacing of his crimes, you know, going different uh, amounts of time in between killings, sometimes a couple months, sometimes a couple years. And also because he produced a massive amount of semen. This disgusting, absurd detail really did help this cow fucker get away with it. He, he, he came so much at the crime scenes that police thought the murders, you know, were committed by groups of men. Such a strange serial killer. Uh, he consistently evoked pity in many of the parents of kids who referred to him as, you know, Uncle Yahim. His neighbor saw him as a lonely, simple-minded man who loved their children, just wanted a family of his own. October 4th, 1979, the trial against Yahim Kroll uh, begins, finally in Deesburg. Despite confessing to 14 murders, he'd be charged with eight uh, and also one uh, count of attempted murder. In the days before DNA evidence, they just didn't have enough evidence with some of these murders to, uh, to, to uh, convict him. On April 8th, 1982, after a 151-day trial, he is convicted on all counts and is given nine life sentences. Public word that he might be found not guilty due to his limited intellectual capacity, but in the end, the judge found Kroll criminally responsible, and I think that was clearly the right call. Uh, Kroll was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Kroll, shocked by the decision, he said again later that uh, one of the main reasons he confessed was because he thought they were going to give him an operation, send him home. Poor bastard. I, I do feel bad for him possibly being born with the deviant urges he had. That, that's a terrible fate for anyone. Nine years later, on July 1st, 1991, Kroll dies of a heart attack in prison in Rheinbach near Bonn at the age of 58. And that will take us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. In the end, investigators think Kroll killed, possibly digested upwards of 30 people. Hard to believe Kroll is a better known serial killer outside of Germany, considering just how unique and disturbing of a killer he was, how successful he was for so long at getting away with his sick crimes. And six times, that part just sticks out to me so much. Other people took the fall for his murders. Six fucking times. Uh, between the Wendigo legend last week and Kroll this week, man, cannibalism. Really been a theme lately here on Time Suck. All this cannibal talk makes me, uh, you know, wonder, makes us wonder over here in the Suck Dungeon how common cannibalism actually is. Let's explore that a bit before we wrap up today's episode. Cannibalism remains one of the most enduring and universal taboos in all of human culture. Why does anyone do it? Cannibals have had, of course, a variety of reasons for doing what they've done. Uh, Most have fallen over the years into one of three camps. Those who engage in endocannibalism, the regular eating of the dead of one's own locality, usually by family members, 
Exocannibalism, the regular eating of people outside of one's own community. And then those who engage in so-called mystical cannibalism, the eating of other people as part of some uh, spiritual ceremony. There are also those who do it strictly to survive in an extreme situation, like the story told in the 1993 movie Alive, based on the true story of a South American soccer team's plane crashing into the Andes. And then the survivors forced to eat each other if they want to live. I made a joke about that exact event over a decade ago on my first stand-up album. And then every once in a while, there is someone like Kroll who just eats folks out of a simple deviant curiosity. And then sometimes they develop a taste for it. Uh, let's talk about endocannibalism for a moment. The Amawaka Indians of Peru picked particles of bone out of the ashes of tribe members who had been recently cremated. They ground those ashes with corn into a, a drink, drinking as kind of a, a, a gruel-type drink. For the Wari people of Western Brazil, endocannibalism was an act of compassion where they roasted remains of fellow Wari, and then as part of their funeral rites, the tribe would eat them to honor them. Ideally, they would end up eating basically all of the meat from the recently deceased, and it was actually considered highly offensive to the direct family members of the dead to have anyone reject eating them. How weird is that, right? Hey, dude, what's your fucking problem? Why, are you suddenly too good to eat my mom? I saw you at the funeral, you uppity piece of shit. You didn't take one bite of my mom. You didn't have a finger steak. You didn't have some of mama's sweet thigh meat. Nothing. That hurts, man. That really stings. Also, how, how weird to eat one of your own parents, right? Like, especially, let your mind go to this place with me for a second. Like, what if the, <laughs> what if the cook does a really, really good job of seasoning them? Like, what a weird mixture of emotions. Like, like you're sad. You know, you're sad. You're sad that your like, dad just died. But also, what if your dad is so tasty? You know, what if you're just thinking stuff like, God damn, man, chef. Chef outdid himself today. This steak is delicious. Wish I could eat my old man every night. Showbiz. Uh, regarding exocannibalism, tribes of people on every continent but Antarctica have eaten members of other tribes, choosing to hunt them as they'd hunt any other animal or choosing to eat them as, a, as an added insult towards their enemies. The Wari who I just mentioned, these people, the Wari, man, they love to eat people. Uh, the, the tribe that ate their own dead, they also ate members of other tribes, but not to honor them. Wari warriors would kill enemies of various enemy tribes, then eat them as means of transforming their enemies into a type of prey. They viewed warfare cannibalism as just another type of hunting. And they didn't stop doing this until the 1960s. On the island of Fiji, after winning a battle, uh, many, many years ago, right? Hundreds of years ago, chiefs would select the most noteworthy warriors of the defeated tribe or that tribe's chief and cook them up to eat. The rest of the warriors would eat other members of the fallen tribe. I wonder if those guys were pissed they didn't get the good meat. You know, just must be nice eating that soft-ass chief all tender and shit. Meanwhile, I'm gnawing on this dried-out, scrawny-ass third-tier warrior. Uh, this form of cannibalism was not done at any need for food. It was done as a way to assert power over conquered people. Uh, that's some serious total war dominance shit there, right, when you're eating your enemies. Uh, mystical cannibalism occurs in Sultan cultures in order to gain uh, powers of those you eat. The Kawari or, or uh, Korowai tribes, there we go, who still live in the deep, remote jungles of Papua New Guinea. People uh, who are still unaware of the existence of any other people living in the world prior to outsiders making contact with them in the 1970s. Uh, they are still rumored to practice mystical cannibalism and exocannibalism, right, to this day. Tribe members live in these crazy-looking houses way up in the air on stilts. Sometimes these tree houses way up in these trees. And part of the reason they live so high up the ground is that so other tribes don't raid them at night and capture them and eat them. Ritual cannibalism 
uh, occurred in Africa in centuries past, often related to sorcery, headhunters, others often consuming bits of the bodies or heads of deceased enemies as a means of absorbing their vitality or their other qualities, you know, reducing their, their powers of revenge, keep their spirit from taking revenge on them. Central America, the Aztecs, notorious for ritual cannibalism, warriors stripping flesh from enemies they'd slain in combat. In North America, the Karenkawa tribe of Southeast Texas, said to practice ritual cannibalism on defeated enemies, uh, been suggested that the pre-Iroquois, or Iroquois, bleh, Iroquois, Mohawk, and the ancient uh, Anasazi may have practiced group cannibalism. The Mohawk were called man-eaters by their Algonquian enemies. Uh, you know, and God knows how much other cannibalism occurred uh, all over the world, world before written history was a thing. Probably quite a bit. Uh, today, outside of maybe a very small handful of remote tribes in the jungles of the South Pacific and, and maybe South America, culturally condoned cannibalism, thankfully, no longer exists. Uh, despite the many wild and unfounded claims of the idiots of the internet. Been a while since we've done this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Idiots of the internet. All right, if you're newish to Time Suck, this, uh, this is a segment where I share some idiotic comments left under a video, uh, you know, I came across doing research for the topic of the week. Uh, while researching the prevalence of modern cannibalism, I came across a YouTube video titled, this is good, Mel Gibson slash Rob Downey Jr. Expose Cannibalism and Pedophilia in Hollywood. <laughs> Uploaded by the Truth Seeker News Channel. Uh, and you know what? And I found that whenever somebody puts like truth in their, uh, you know, YouTube channel, it's almost always just fucking nonsense. Uh, uploaded by the Truth Seeker News Channel on December 15th of last year, this video already has over 508,000 views, over 9,000 thumbs up, less than 400 thumbs down, which is a scary ratio. Uh, it's, it's just under 15 minutes long. I want to play you the first 45 seconds or so, so you, so you can hear these claims. Oh, boy. Hello, everyone. This is Kerry from Truth Seeker News. Thanks for being with me once again. Well, today I have two articles for you, mm -hmm. one from the World Prayer Centre featuring an interview they had with Mel Gibson about roughly 18 months ago on the prevalence of pedophilia and cannibalism uh -huh. among Hollywood elites. The second and more recent article is from worldtruth.tv okay. website featuring an interview with Robert Downey Jr., on the same subject. Mm -hmm. And and then she just goes into what these uh, articles supposedly say, which it's, it takes a long time to get to like the good points. But I, I just want to like play what she starts off, that, like the premise for her video, that these are, you know, documented things that have happened. Both of, I think, Carrie, these narrators claims, total bullshit. You can Google for yourself if you doubt me. Neither Mel Gibson nor Robert Downey Jr. have recently made claims that Hollywood is full of not only pedophiles, but uh, cannibal pedophiles. I'm fairly certain that neither one of these dudes has ever made these claims. I would say I'm 100% certain, but Mel Gibson says some crazy shit, you know, in his day. Uh, the World Press Center, the narrator refers to as the source of Mel Gibson saying this nonsense, not real. It's not real. There is no World Press Center. There's no worldpresscenter.com, no worldpresscenter.org, uh, no worldpresscenter.biz, no worldpresscenter.tv. True Seeker News should rename their channel to Made Up Wackadoodle Bullshit News. That's what they report. Not truth. The second source this lunatic refers to, uh, worldtruth.tv. Holy shit. Oh, it's real. It is like the ultimate wackadoodle news site. It's something else. I actually recommend checking it out. 
Uh, when I looked on his homepage on June 18th, the top headlines were Chemtrail Whistleblower Speaks, and even better, Lady Gaga Regrets Selling Her Soul to Illuminati Dark Forces. So, maybe a tiny bit less incredible. Uh, here's some thoughts from some idiots with uh, the criti critical thinking skills of, I don't know, uh, Yahim Kroll left underneath this video. Number one, <laughs> this, the one more comment I have today, Eternity, It's Your Choice, posted six months ago. Please pray for Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. to be protected at all times, including everyone who touches their lives from now on. They have exposed a plan of Satan's, and now they need God's protection at all times. They will be attacked for doing this. Uh, still waiting, still waiting on those attacks, Eternity. Uh, they're both doing fine. They're both doing more than fine. Uh, as of this recording, both still very rich. Still doing uh, very, very well for themselves. Uh, the second comment, uh, Karen Setzer, two months ago posted, thanks to Mel Gibson for exposing these adrenochrome craving pedivores. Pedivore? That's a new term to me. I assume a pedivore is uh, someone who molests and eats children. Someone like Yahim Kroll. And adrenochrome, uh, that's a term that many conspiracy theorists are loving right now. We talked about that term uh, at length on this week's, uh, this last week's Secret Suck podcast. Uh, global elites staying young and vital by feasting on this mythical drug harvested from the pituitary glands of tortured children sold on the black market. Uh, this belief is utter nonsense. It's madness. It's web lore originating randomly from a passage in Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's third one here, uh, Junkyard Dogs post. <laughs> Keanu Reeves has also come out and said the same things. No, no, he has not. That's fucking nonsense. That is not true. It's just outright a lie. Uh, four, <laughs> another one here, Shakes It Off posts. 600,000 kids go missing every year in the U.S. Clearly, they're throwing this term out to elude uh, that, uh, you know, most if not all these kids who go missing, you know, must obviously be eaten, uh, which is nonsense. Uh, actually, the number of missing kids closer to 800,000 a year, or at least it was 800,000 years recent as 2012. According to 2012 info, roughly 800,000 kids do go missing in the U.S. every year. And terrifying, right? Not as terrifying when you look into this number uh, just a tiny bit further. According to Ernie Allen, president of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a guy who probably knows a thing or two about the numbers here. He says more than 99% of these kids return home alive when referring to the 800,000 number. Important to look into shit. Yes, they go missing. Most, the overwhelming majority do not stay missing. Uh, user Chili uh, posts, and by the way, this does not just happen in Hollywood. This has been going on with royal families and government leaders in Europe for a very long time. No, it hasn't. Nah, that's horseshit. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles are not gnawing on some toddler's fucking leg bones right now. Washing her down with adrenochrome. Get the fuck out of here. Uh, user Pam Bowder took a quick break from her job, probably running a Fortune 500 company or maybe designing rockets for SpaceX, to post, I am praying God's protection for Mr. Gibson and Mr. Downey. Protect them from being suicided. <laughs> please help the children. Ah, oh, please help yourself, Pam. Pray less, study more. Please, let's, let's church more school for fuck's sake. No one's getting suicided. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a term. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not the way you use that. No one, you just say like they, they may have committed suicide, they may have been murdered, but you don't say that somebody is suicide. Finally, uh, <laughs> this is also ridiculous to me. 
I, I, could talk, I could list out similar comments to the ones I've already thrown out for like 12 hours. Uh, but I'll stop here with Richard Willett, who posts, this is the mega group, which includes Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. <laughs> it is connected to Epstein and the Clintons and therefore Weinstein and the rest of the Sabatian Frankism, okay, uh, which is behind Zionism. Isaac Cappy worked hard to expose this and is a true legend. I will be making a documentary about him. You know what? Go fuck yourself, Dick Willett. Uh, the trailer for your documentary has about 500 views right now, and I hope that far less actually watch the actual documentary. Uh, you're exposing nothing. You're perpetuating nonsense. You just waste people's time, keeps them from focusing on uh, real problems, keeps them from discussing very real problems in the world today. Stop being another idiot of the internet, making content that keeps others or helps keep them as ignorant as you are. There's no giant cabal of elites eating kids. There are just occasional fucking maniacs like Joachim Kroll. Now let's get out of here and talk about some other real cannibals. Idiots of the internet. All right, we time-sucking meat sacks already know about other serial-killing cannibals like Jeffrey Dahmer, Albert Fish, peanut butter, showbiz. What other dirtbags are out there? Uh, quite a few who will probably end up as future Time Suck episodes. Dirtbags like Arthur Shawcross. Uh, diehard death metal fans might remember that time Cannibal Corpse sampled serial killer Arthur Shawcross as the opening to their track Addicted to Vaginal Skin off the Tomb of the Mutilated album. The audio clip of the madman speaking about his crimes seemed to suit the track perfectly. As Shawcross says at one point, I just took that knife and I cut her from her neck down to her anus. Oh my God. And I cut out her vagina and ate it. Jesus. Arthur Shawcross, a.k.a. the Genesee River Killer, a deranged murderer who took the lives of 14 people between 1972 and 1989. He began his murderous spree by killing two children in New York, caught for killing two kids, took a plea deal, served 14 years in prison, seven years for each kid. That doesn't sound good. 1990, he would be convicted of killing 10 prostitutes. Shawcross mutilated each body immensely, eight parts of the women claiming to have first cannibalized during his time back in Vietnam saying it bred an unstoppable lust for killing within him. Yeesh. Uh, lust for killing and for cannibalism within him. Arthur Shawcross died in prison in 2008. Uh, I'm sure he'll get his own suck one day. Uh, Canadian killer, Luke Magnata, also apparently tasted human flesh. Luke Magnata sparked an international manhunt after he butchered a Chinese international student named Lin Jun in 2012 in Montreal, Canada. The twisted killer uploaded footage of himself repeatedly stabbing his victim with an ice pick, then dismembering him and performing acts of necrophilia. Canadian cops saw a more extensive version than what was released to the public, where cannibalism was also performed. Magnata then sent parts of the body to political parties and schools in Canada, eventually arrested in Berlin in a, at an internet cafe while reading stories about himself online, received a punishment of life in prison with no possibility of parole. Great documentary I watched about Luke on Netflix called Don't Fuck With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. Uh, Luke got married randomly back in 2017 to Anthony Jolin, armed robber serving life in prison for stabbing another inmate to death uh, in the shower in prison. So how, how sweet. I wonder where they spent their honeymoon. Not all modern, modern cannibal criminals uh, come from North America. This next dirtbag comes from the Southern Hemisphere, Dorangel Vargas. After being arrested in Venezuela in 1999, this homeless man confessed to killing and eating at least 10 men over the course of two years. Uh, he did refuse to eat women or children. He had some standards. He had a conscience. When authorities searched the area surrounding his encampment, they found the remains of at least six victims in different states of being eaten. To be fair to Durangel, he, uh, he is a paranoid schizophrenic. He was unmedicated and untreated at the time of his cannibalistic attacks. 
Uh, also cannibals all over in Europe, uh, like in the UK. The UK, as you know, home to 99% of the world's killer kids. <laughs> JK, gosh dang. Uh, not really. Just a little nod in that episode. Uh, the UK does have some sick fucks, though, who eat people. Like Anthony Morley, 1993, then 21-year-old. Anthony Morley became the first winner of Mr. Gay UK, an annual British beauty pageant for gay men that ran until 2013. Uh, or a contest, I guess, more than pageant. Uh, are those synonymous? Uh, a few years later, 1996, the male model appeared on the British dating show, uh, God's Gift. And the audience that day was Damien Oldfield. Oldfield worked for the British gay lifestyle magazine Bent. Years later, the two dated. Then in 2013, Anthony, now working as a 36-year-old chef, invited Damien, who is now his ex-boyfriend, over to his Leeds flat. After the pair uh, watched Brokeback Mountain in bed, they fell asleep. And then at some point in the night, Anthony snapped, slashed Damien's throat, stabbed him multiple times, cut off sections of his flesh from his thigh and chest, seasoned it with herbs, fried it in olive oil, and ate it. He then stumbled to a nearby kebab shop in a blood-drenched dressing gown, told the staff he had killed someone because they tried to rape him. Six pieces of human flesh cooked so they were raw in the middle and browned on the edges, later found on a chopping board in Morley's kitchen. My God! Bundle of fresh herbs, a knife used to chop them, some olive oil, dish of seeds found on the work surface near the cooker. Frying pan was on the on the stove with remnants of fried herbs and oil in it. A section of flesh, which appeared to have been chewed, found in a uh, bin bag. Morty told the judge at his trial that he killed Oldfield after waking up to find him performing a sexual act on him. That he feared he was going to be raped. The judge did not buy it. He was found guilty on October 17, 2008 and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, Yahim Kroll, not the only modern German cannibal, uh, Armin Maivas, even more recent human-eating German dirtbag. We've heard a lot of crazy shit today. This this is more intense even, possibly, just, just with the, the details. This is, whew, this had me cringing and just uh, from my desk saying just, God damn it, so many times. Maivas received a life sentence for murdering a man he met on the internet in 2001. He had posted an advertisement on the website, The Cannibal Crick, a now defunct forum for people with a cannibalism fetish, stating that he was looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old man to be slaughtered and then consumed. That was the ad. Looking for a well-built 18 to 30-year-old man, or 18 to 30-year-old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Pretty straightforward. Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes, an engineer from Berlin, answered this ad. In March 2001. Uh, you know, why not? Why not? What could go wrong? Answering that kind of ad. What, what could go wrong? Answering an ad to be literally slaughtered. What are the odds that someone advertising something like that might actually want to, uh, you know, slaughter and eat you? Uh, it turns out pretty good. The two made one of the most fucked up videos of all time. When they met on March 9th, 2001 in 39-year-old Mivas's home in a small town west of Rottenburg. Once there, Brandes apparently agreed to let Mivas cut his dick off. Not kidding. He asked to have his penis specifically bit off. Not bit, bit off. He then took 20 sleeping pills, drank a bottle of cough syrup to numb the pain, and then Mivas tried to bite this man's dick off. It didn't work. It was harder than he thought it was going to be. So then he cut it off with a knife. Then Brandes tried to eat his own penis raw. You understand? This is unreal. The one guy, Mivas, cuts this other guy's dick off. And then the guy who has his dick cut off wants to eat his own penis, wants to be fed his penis on video. And he said it's too chewy. He tries to eat it on video as he's bleeding. So then Mivas cooks it 
Fries it in a pan with salt, pepper, wine, and garlic. My God. And he burns it. Son of a bitch. He burns his dick. Yeah, that's rough. That's a rough meal. Where it's like, you can't, just, you can't just run to the grocery store and get another human dick. So he burns it, he wastes it, and he, then he chops it up and feeds it to his dog. And then Mivus, <laughs> this is the weirdest. Mivus runs the badly bleeding, but still alive, Brandis a bath, runs him a bath, puts him in the tub, just lets him sit in the bath and just, uh, you know, he's got sleeping pills. You know, he's kind of fading in and out of consciousness. While he's fading out, he, he wanders off to another part of the house to read a Star Trek book comes back to check in on Brandis every 15 minutes. I shit you not. These are real details. Just reading about Captain Kirk's adventures while a dude lays bleeding to death in his bathtub, a dude whose dick he'd tried to bite off, a dude whose dick he'd cut off, cooked up, burnt, fed to his dog. I wonder if he tried talking to him about the book while he checked on him, right? Just to make it more surreal. Hey, 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 uh, you ever read My Enemy, My Ally? Oh, it's great. Kirk is contacted by this Romulan commander. He's had some run-ins with her in the past. Uh, what's that? Oh, you need a new Band-Aid for the hole where your dick used to be? No problem. One sec. Hey, I, I just can't stop thinking, though, about, like, there's this one part where the Romulan convinces her crew to cross the neutral zone into Federation space and, uh, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, fine. No, I'll get you, I'll get you the Band-Aid, some more sleeping pills. And, and I, listen, listen, I got to say this again. I know you asked me to stop apologizing, but seriously, I need you to know I feel terrible for burning your dick. I feel really bad. Uh, Brandis drifted in and out of consciousness again. Yeah, he finally, when he was near death, uh, Mivis kills Brandis by stabbing him in the throat. And he hangs his body on a meat hook. This whole ordeal is recorded on video. The police never released it to public, thank God, but they did refer to it in the later trial. Uh, Mivis butchers up Brandis' corpse, stores his meat in a freezer, and then eats him over the next 10 months. They estimate he consumed uh, 45 pounds of his flesh. Uh, according to prosecutors, doing this sexually satisfied Mivis. He was originally convicted of manslaughter, claiming his victim asked to be killed. This was overturned. He was found guilty of murder in 2006. There are so many other examples out there of modern cannibals, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, elsewhere. No shortage of meat sack eaters. Uh, no need to go over a ton of them today. You get it. But I do want to relay info on one more. A lady. They're not all dudes. Italian cannibal, Leonardo Cianculli. Uh, Leonardo Cianculli uh, murdered three middle-aged neighbor women in Italy between 1939 and 1940. The so-called soap maker of Careggio. The soap maker of Careggio. She like it to make a soap. Uh, she turned her victims' bodies into soap and tea cakes. Which she... <laughs> Jesus. I know that's not funny. So, tea cakes? And she served these uh, tea cakes and soap to her friends. She'd also use the soap and she'd also eat tea cakes herself. Uh, how does one turn a person into a tea cake, you might wonder? Uh, surprisingly, she, she never published a cookbook, but she did talk about it at her trial in 1946, saying, quote, I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap. I stirred the mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it coagulated, dried in the oven, ground it, mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together. I, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Joseph Giuseppe and I also ate them. My God, just had a little party. Everyone eating these tea cakes made out of her fucking neighbor. The tea cakes are made of people. The tea cakes are made of people. A little Soylent Green reference there. Regarding the soap, she said at her trial, then this is talking about her third victim. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne. After a long time on the boil, 
I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. I said, Would you like a soap? Have a eat on this kid, eat on this tea cake. It's the best tea cake you ever had. Uh, she reportedly killed these women as sacrifices uh, in order to protect her son from dying in World War II. She was completely out of her mind. She confessed to her crimes, was found guilty of the murders, went to an asylum where she spent, uh, you know, the rest of her life uh, incarcerated. Uh, what about her son? It does seem that he survived the war. So, you know, maybe it worked. Maybe that shit worked. So what a funny, lighthearted, uplifting episode, huh? Uh, fuck me. Uh, can't stress enough. These cannibals are the extreme exception to the rule of people uh, almost always not killing each other and almost always not eating each other. The odds of you ending up in someone's stew pot, real low. Odds probably a lot lower than it used to be, actually. Hundreds of years ago, it seems as if cannibalism uh, a little more common than it is now, so that's good. You know, now we have freezers and Eggo waffles and microwave burritos. We have canned protein shakes and fast food and all kinds of snacks that last forever and are cheap and, you know, keep us plenty full enough to never need to eat anyone. Yahim Kroll is truly disturbing as he was. Not alone, though, when it comes to killing and eating people. Uh, he might be alone, though, at least when it comes to modern history, when it comes to people who've eaten other people and also fuck cows. And he has to be alone. When it comes to people who've eaten other people and fucked cows and choked and fucked dolls and deposited copious amounts of semen at multiple rape and murder scenes where other people are held responsible for the crime. I hope so. I really hope he's the only one. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, six times. Six different dudes took the fall for Cole's various murders in one way or another before he was finally arrested. Number two, this guy produced enough semen to throw investigators off his trail numerous times. That's got to be a first, right? He's got to be the only dude that, that comes so much that police, you know, just kept thinking it. a gang of men must have been responsible. I hope so. Number three, police were baffled by Kroll's murders because they thought a serial killer capable of these kinds of crimes must be uh, somewhat calculating and intelligent. Instead, Kroll was, was basically the Forrest Gump of raping and murdering and eating people. Number four, a German engineer volunteered to eat his own dick on camera and then die and be eaten by a stranger. That has to be the most intense and elaborate suicide I've ever read about. Number five, something new. During the trial of Joachim Kroll, the German legislature actually changed German law to make sure Kroll never got out of prison. They made sure that Kroll would serve consecutive terms for his various crimes, which equated to life in prison previous to this law change. Uh, due to Kroll's limited mental, mental capacity, it would have been possible that he would have been released after serving you know, concurrent sentences for the murders could have gotten out 10, 20 years and possibly killed again. But because of overwhelming media coverage and public outcry to punish Kroll, German authorities changed the law. Thank God. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Wow. Yahim Kroll has been sucked and several other cannibals kind of sucked. Not sure if we do deep dives on any of those uh, going forward or not, actually. <laughs> Very disturbing. But darkly entertaining. I can't, just my God. What a strange, strange addition to the catalog. Uh, I didn't think we could get much stranger than showbiz, Albert Fish, but I don't know. Yeah, him crawl right up there. Uh, thank you again to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe, Horsecock Johnson, Paisley, Bidelixer, Logan and Kate Keith at Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery, for always cranking out so much fantastic research. Uh, thanks to all of those involved in keeping the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group moderated by the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, and our all-seen eyes. Uh, we also have our own Discord channel you can link over to easily from the Time Suck app. Over 6,500 Discord users now, oh, almost 20,000 Cult members in the Facebook group now. So a lot of fun interaction out there. 
Next week on Time Suck, once again, the space lizards have spoken and chosen wisely. This time we head to Egypt to learn all about the ancient gods that inspired some of the world's most impressive enigmatic structures. From the massive Luxor temple in the ancient city of Thebes to the over 100 pyramids that reside in Egypt, we will leave no massive limestone or granite block unturned to reveal the secrets of Egyptian spirituality. One of the greatest societies to ever exist, ancient Egypt, has over 6,000 years of history and culture that is both world famous and mysterious, posing questions that even the most learned experts still struggle to answer. To go along with their massive structures, they have an equally gigantic pantheon of gods with somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 deities. We certainly won't be able to go over them all, but we will introduce you to their major gods, as well as some of the most terrifying deities ever to descend from the heavens. From Amit, the devourer of the dead. The gods like, you know, Horus, protector of Egypt. It's going to be an epic suck. Uh, join us next week to learn all about Egypt's ancient gods. Now let's see what messages our god, Nimrod, has bestowed upon us for you to hear in this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Kicking things off with a cool update based on last week's Wendigo Suck, Super Florida Suckers Lisa and Will write in saying, Hello to everyone in the Suck Dungeon. My name is Lisa Cool. Thank you for pronunciation guide. Uh, from South Florida, and I just want to thank you for all your constant hard work and dedication on this incredible community you've built. That's very nice. Uh, I was excited to hear all of the information you gave on American Indians. My husband, Will Cool, is part of the Oneida Nation, the Wolf Clan. When he still lived in New York, he was a living historian and did war reenactments. That is so cool. Uh, the picture attached was a life-sized photo of him that was in the Saratoga National Historical Park. Just wanted to share our little bit of information from the most recent suck. You kick ass. Hail Nimrod, Lisa, and Will. P.S. We are also both total creeps. Please keep up the spoopiness on Scared to Death. Thank you, Lisa and Will. Uh, I love, I saw the picture. Uh, love seeing Will dressed up in his full uh, Oneida Wolf Clan warrior regalia. Very badass. Uh, just, I love the um, kind of pain he had on his face. Man, that would be intimidating as shit to see uh, some some guy, you know, dressed up like that coming across, uh, you know, the field or through the woods at you. Uh, glad you enjoy Scared to Death as well, you creeps. Hope you two are still able to go to New York often to visit family. I assume Will still has in the area. Very cool to be part of the United Culture. And, and I wasn't even thinking of your last name when I just said cool. Guessing you probably hear that a lot. Cool cools. Uh, next up, kick-ass law enforcement meat sack Logan Noble has an incredible and funny story to share with us. This is one of the coolest stories we've ever gotten, actually. Logan writes, to the master sucker and the petter of Bojangles Red Rocket. Wait a second. That doesn't sound right. Anyways, I have a funny story I thought you'd appreciate. I'm a police officer that received a time suck-related call a few years ago. I was dispatched to the home of a local well-known wackadoodle. And in case you start to feel bad for laughing, this guy, don't. He's uh, also a child sex offender who spent time in prison. This paranoid fuck called the police department to report an Illuminati sticker on the light pole in front of his residence. He said it was watching him. I laughed to myself. I didn't give much credence to the call because this guy's been calling the station with paranoid delusions and other silly complaints for many years. So I get there. He shows me the pole. Sure as shit. There was an Illuminati themed sticker on the pole. Two thoughts go through my head. A, holy shit. There actually is a sticker on the pole. And B, what the fuck is it? I removed the sticker from the poll, thought nothing more of it until about a year later when I discovered the Time Suck podcast. It was then that this old call popped into my head and I recognized the sticker. It was a Time Suck sticker from the Street Team stickers. So I would like to take uh, you to take some solace from knowing that your podcast has mind-fucked at least one paranoid pedophile. Gives me a laugh every time I think about it. On a less funny note, I did deface a suck by removing the sticker. 
Hope you found this funny. I will continue to listen to the podcast for as long as you can handle making it. I've already gotten four or five guys from the department listening to it also. And on another good note, you mushmouth, uh, <laughs> your mushmouth shouldn't have a hard time pronouncing my name. Well, thank you, Officer Noble. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an easy name to pronounce. I appreciate it. And that's amazing. That's fucking incredible. Uh, thanks for doing what you do. Also, I hope you and your crew are protecting and serving your community, staying safe. I just, I love, I love that one of our stickers freaked that guy out enough for him to call you. He's looking at a Time Suck sticker, seeing that Illuminati, you know, symbolism, just being like, nah, they're fucking, they're watching me. There's the eye. It sees everything I do. Uh, funny sucker, Jeff Stevenson sent us one of the shortest messages we've ever received. And it cracked me up. I just wanted to share it. He sent in an email with a subject line of fucking Paisley. And all the message said was, hey, Time Suck team, sorry for the long email, Jeff. Well played. Well played. Nice callback to many other messages. I love your message. Only said sorry for the long email. Hail Nimrod. Now for a super disturbing killer kids update from Michigan-based meat sack, Justin Holiday. Justin writes, hello, master sucker. I've been a fan for over the last few years. I've been waiting to find a reason to email you. I managed to meet you and Lindsay at the, at the Bob in Grand Rapids last year with a friend of mine. Oh, that's cool. Anyway, this is related to the killer kids. I grew up without knowing about a distant aunt and uncle. This is so crazy, this story. I wasn't informed of this information until I was in high school when I met their son. Uh, I had it confirmed with my dad about the news after he told me the story. It seems many years ago, my aunt and uncle were going for a walk. They lived in the middle of nowhere. They had almost walked past a household when two young brothers whose parents weren't currently home, uh, who were roughly in their early teens, these kids decided to take their parents' guns, ran outside, pointed their guns at my aunt and uncle, forced them to walk into the cornfield, uh, the cornfield they had in their yard. When they were far enough into the field to not be seen, the kids shot and killed both of them. To top it all off, they cleaned the bodies as to not leave a trail and then left the bodies under their beds. I heard the bodies were under their beds for about a week before the boys' parents found them. I have no information beyond that, but I thought you would find this interesting. If you managed to read this on Time Suck, praise Bojangles and keep on sucking. Thank you. Jesus. That is beyond intense. Your poor aunt and uncle, your poor cousin. I can't believe those kids just put their bodies under the bed like they were a, a couple porn magters. That's just so fucking absurd and dark. Ugh. I wonder what happened to those kids too. I mean, if they're tried as, I don't, if they were in their early teens, I hope they didn't get tried as juveniles because that's, that's just beyond dark. That's beyond like a kid mistake by a long ways. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening, writing in. Hope you hope you don't have any family stories darker than that one. And now we're going to end on a cute, after uh, after all this darkness, cute little shout out. Sweet sucker Wes Arnetti writes in, thank you for the pronunciation guide. Uh, I would have I would have fucked up Arnetti big time. Uh, Arnetti writes in with a shout out request. Good morning, noon, evening, or night, Master Suck. I was just wondering if you could give my grandma and I a birthday shout out. On June 21st, I will turn 16 and my grandma Mary will turn 77. Thank you for keeping me entertained, filling my ear holes with the sweetest of sucks while I work in the yard and around the house. Happy sucking. Hail Nimrods. And be gone, Lucifina. Wes uh, Ananetti. Oh, man. Sixteenth, a big one, man. Well, happy barely belated birthday, Wes. And uh, happy birthday to your grandmother. Uh, you know what? I, Wes, take my advice here. I, I want you to make your grandma Mary listen to this entire episode to hear the birthday shout out. Don't tell her where it is. Don't tell her it's at the end. Just make her listen to the entire thing. And then I want you two to have a very long talk about it afterwards. I want her to, to grill you on why you choose to listen to shit like this. Uh, <laughs> hail Nimrod. Uh, hail Lucifina. Thanks for the messages, everyone. 
And that's it for this week's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week. And actually, just like I said last week, still don't eat anyone. Hopefully, that won't be my advice next week. Will the Egyptian God suck break our cannibalism run? I hope so. Find out when you keep on sucking. You want to go get something to eat? You know, I I can't pinpoint why, but I just, uh, I really don't have much of an appetite right now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.